Maverick News presents The Rick Walker Show Defrag your mind Good evening, Maverick family, new viewers from all over the world. Welcome back to the Maverick News Channel. Great to have everyone back here for this special broadcast. And it is uh, its going to be stacked. We have so much to talk about and some special guests joining us this evening. First up, um, something sad to report. Journalist Gonzalo Lira has been reported deceased. It appears he died in a Ukrainian prison. We'll be called comment on that tonight. That's a story that we did follow from the very beginning. I've commented on it a few times since uh, we saw him taken into custody by Ukraine. And since then, it has been strangely silent. I was very surprised that there wasn't more of a an effort made by someone, somewhere, some organization, some government, one side or the other, somebody to do something to help him. Strange case. We'll follow up on that. The Canadian government... It doesn't look like uh, Canada will be backing up South Africa's effort to have Israel held accountable on charges of genocide. And what else? Weather. Well, what just over Christmas, everyone was complaining, saying that it was too warm, there wasn't enough snow, and even... The climate change skeptics here began to chime in and say, "It's it, it, things seem to be kind of topsy-turvy. But here we are tonight and in many parts of Canada. What do we have on our hands? Sub-zero temperatures and snow. Certainly that's the case here tonight where many things are being canceled. People planning to go out on a Friday night and note they're stuck at home because now we have the snow that everyone... Said they were missing over Christmas. Not me. And later in the show, very soon, actually, our special guests will be arriving. We have journalist Chris Dacey. I would call him a new school journalist. And we have a friend of mine, Gail Robertson, uh, an old school newspaper traditional kind of reporter who has moved into the, the realm of new journalism. And we have former police officer Rob Stock. He is supposed to join us as well to talk about the arrest of David Menzies from Rebel News. But not just that. We're going to talk about the broader issues of the new journalism and the evolving relationships between media, police, media and the public, police and the public, public trust and in institutions, government, government influence over media. 
and everything that that involves and how technology, the internet, social media, how all of that is interacting and changing our cultural and media landscape. So all that and a whole lot more coming up right here on the Maverick News Channel. Don't go away. We'll have more right after this. Feel the vibrations. Our quest continues. The truth is out there. We are Mavericks. is watching. Gonzalo Lira. Was in prison. He was a, a critic of Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky and President Joe Biden. He was taken into custody. Boy, how long ago was that now? Months ago. Uh, he's been reported. It's been reported tonight that he has died at the age of 55 in a Ukrainian prison. It looks like Tucker Carlson may have been the reporter who broke this story. I'm finding this rather interesting tonight. Before we run the clips of Gonzalo Lira... I want to show you this. Here's TASS, the Russian news agency, saying Tucker Carlson reports on death of American reporter in Ukrainian custody. So TASS uses Tucker's name in a headline, a Russian 
News Agency. That's interesting. Reporter Gonzalo Lira, a citizen of Chile and the U.S., who was detained by Security Service of Ukraine, SBU, has died in prison. And yes, it is, uh, I was saying Tucker Carlson reported that, and the source was Gonzalo Lira's father, who was recently on Tucker Carlson's program on X, formerly known as Twitter. So I guess Tucker Carlson added that despite Lira's American citizenship, the U.S. administration, quote, clearly supported his imprisonment and torture. It, well, it has been a very strange situation. Uh, some of what Gonzalo Lira did made no sense to me because he, he had been arrested previously, then released, didn't leave the country, continued with restrictions to publish work that was very critical of the Ukrainian government while in Ukraine and the Biden regime administration. And then they raided his apartment, arrested him again, let him go. If I remember, if I'm getting the chronology correct. And then he tried to escape and went to the border and just before he crossed the border, he went live on social media, did a and, and produced a, a long live video, which we ran on this channel. And I thought, if you're trying to get away, why would you advertise on social media that you're about to cross the border right over there so that they can just pick you up? It made no sense to me. And then he wound up in prison and he said in the video that if he was caught, he would probably die. And now his father is reporting that he is dead. Now, the other odd thing about Gonzalo Lira's case is it seemed like nobody cared. Nobody wanted him. There are other journalists in custody. There's, a, there's an American journalist in custody in Russia. The United States has made some effort to have him freed, but nobody came to bat for Gonzalo Lira. Now, I can understand, I guess, why the United States didn't step up to help him because he was so critical of the U.S. administration, but still had U.S. citizenship and still deserved the same consideration, honestly, in my view, as any other journalist or even citizen who is taken into custody by another government, a government, honestly, that is a puppet of the United States, but not a peep, nothing from the White House, nothing from Biden or the administration at all. And then you would think, well, if he's supporting the Russians, wouldn't they want him? Not a word. No support from the from the Russian side either. I found that perplexing. Nobody wants this guy. 
I heard rumors on both sides saying that he was supporting this side or he was supporting that side. It was like, I guess nobody wanted him because everybody thought he was on the other side, like some sort of a double agent. It's like he was a journalist viewed by governments as some sort of operative or agent, maybe suspected at least of that. So no one took much interest in his case. Tucker Carlson seemed to. And maybe that has something to do with the whole thing. I Very odd. And now seeing Tucker Carlson singled out, highlighted in that story in TASS. I don't know if it means anything or not, but it's, uh, I think it's, I think maybe there's something going on there. Like maybe it was Tucker Carlson, you know, you know, trying to leverage something so that Gonzalo Lira could get out and get into Russia or whatever. But tonight, Gonzalo Lira, I would say uh, a casualty of war. Here is the video. I'll run some of this. I believe this is, yeah, this is that he made as he was about to cross the border. If you're trying to escape, if you're trying to get out of a country because your life is in danger and you've been arrested and you're supposed to be on house arrest and you leave and breach your conditions and then you're trying to get out of the country and cross the border, my advice, don't go live on social media and tell the world where you are. And even if you don't tell people where you are, it's pretty easy to figure out where you are when you're on a phone. In any case, he didn't make it over the border. He was captured and wound up in prison. Here is, here's a little bit of that video. Contacted these gangsters, probably through the prison guards at CISA and figured out, or basically had the prisoners in the fourth cell that I was in do the actual dirty work of um, getting the money out of me, see? Because you see, the guards, they never beat any of the prisoners. No, it's the prisoners who beat the other prisoners. In fact, after this 30-hour session, one of the thugs who had really, really hurt me, I mean, he hit me pretty badly, especially on the chest. He, he hit me like right here on the sternum repetitively and so hard that it had it left this huge uh, 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 bruise. And by the way, the, the cell boss, the guy higher, berated him for having left a mark on me because of course, the kind of torture that they wanna do doesn't leave a mark. That's the point of it, see? Because if it leaves a mark, then it's evidence, you see? So anyway, um, this is that previous incarceration who beat me so relentlessly over that 30-hour stretch. After, you know, as we're, we're trying to figure out a way to get this cash to these gangsters, these thugs, he came to me spontaneously and apologized. Uh, you know, it wasn't his idea, but he had to do it, you know, because he was a prisoner. He'd been in, in, in CISO, in CISO prison for two years already. So... You know, it's, it's not that he wanted to do this, but that he had to do it. And, you know, I understood, you know, because that's the way it operates. Now, I'm telling you all of this 
so that you understand my situation. My case originally started as a free speech issue. But because of the SBU and the inherent corruption of the SBU and the criminal justice system in Ukraine, I will definitely be sent to a prison labor camp where I will most certainly die. And so I decided that the smart thing was take my chances in terms of getting across the border. Right now, I'm maybe five kilometers away from the border with Hungary. Uh, over the last two days, I rode my bike just about 1,300 kilometers from Kharkov all the way here to the border. And my intention is to cross the border, uh, get to Hungary, and in Hungary, I'm going to ask for political asylum. Now, why Hungary? And why ask for political asylum? Very simple. You see, when I don't show up at my court date on Wednesday, the day after tomorrow, there will be an arrest warrant issued for me. Now, of course, this arrest warrant, they will presume that I left the country, so it will become an international arrest warrant. Now, the European Union, which is allied with Ukraine to its perdition, as, as many of you know in terms of the European economies, well, the, the Europeans will comply with this international arrest warrant, and they will scoop me up at the first chance. And it won't matter that it's a free speech case. It won't matter, nothing will matter except complying. If I were to go to Poland or Slovenia or Romania, all of these little gremlins of the EU, they're gonna scoop me up instantly and return me to the graces of the SBU and the criminal justice system. And eventually I'll wind up in a prison labor camp. I'm hoping that Hungary, which has shown some independence insofar as these matters are concerned, of complying with idiotic EU regulations and, and diktats, I'm hoping that the authorities in Hungary will look at my indictment, realize that it has nothing to do with me being an actual bona fide criminal in terms of harming people or, or property, and it's really a strictly free speech issue, an issue of democratic speech, and I'm hoping that the Hungarian authorities will show some mercy some, and some understanding and grant me this political asylum. Um, that's my hope. By the way, I don't know anybody in, in, in Hungary. I've been to Budapest, you know, once for a long week and it was lovely, but I don't know anybody in Hungary. I don't have any relations with Hungarians of any sort. Um, I dated a Hungarian girl once uh, years ago, but other than that, I don't have any connection to Hungary, and so I'm really going to be throwing myself at their mercy, hoping that they will see through this bullshit and realize that it's grossly unfair and it is just uh, despicable. That's the only word I can think of. And so, yeah, you know, um, that's my situation. And so as, I'm, as this video goes live, at the time that it goes live, I'm going to be crossing the border. 
and I'm going to be hoping that my name doesn't appear on any system and that I'll be allowed through. That's my hope. Uh, if my name is on some system, on some list that they have at the border, then I'll be arrested and um, it will be effectively a death sentence. And so I'm posting this video so that people know what happened to me if I really disappear. Mm -hmm. um, I'm certainly scared, sure, but fear doesn't really help the situation now, does it? You have to be clear. You have to be clear and you have to look at the options. And I've thought about this situation very, very carefully. And between the absolute certainty of going to a prison labor camp if I show up in court on Wednesday and the slim chance that I might be able to cross the border, I'll take my chances. Some people might think that, oh, why don't you just sneak across some empty field or something like that? That's laughable, okay? But the obvious fact that, of course, if you sneak into Europe, you know, across some field, right? You know, later they're going to ask you, you know, well, how did you get into Europe? You know, uh, what's that all about? Where's your entry stamp, you know? Um, I mean, it, it causes all kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. I mean, I looked at the possibility, by the way. It's not as easy as you think. You think that it's just sneaking across some field. No, no, no. It's, it's not, okay? First of all, all the access points between one country and the other are monitored, okay? And very, fairly easy. They just have motion detectors. And if anything moves, then the cameras go on and they know exactly what's going on, okay? Uh, so that's not an option. So that's the way it went down. And then of course he didn't make it. He wound up in Ukrainian jail. Now he, uh, now he's gone. And I just don't understand why the United States, Canada, Western countries are not more aggressive about standing up for journalists. Well, maybe I do understand. They don't really value free speech and a free media the way that they claim to. Stay with me. Greetings, brave mavericks. Our quest for truth continues. We go beyond fake news. Together we expose propaganda. Together we pull others out of rabbit holes. We are maverick thinkers. We are all unique individuals, individuals, defenders of individual rights and freedoms. Credible, trusted, grounded in reality. Maverick News, Maverick News. Defending free speech, free speech, speech. Donate at freedomreporters.com. Do it now. Tomorrow. Maybe too late. Too late. Too late. Too late. Maverick News. The world is watching.
I'm back. And Joe Biden says if needed, the U.S. will go back into Yemen. Last night we provided, as it happened, live coverage of the airstrikes into Yemen. We had told you previously about warnings from the United States, the UK, allied nations participating in the Red Sea security exercise to defend merchant ships that had been under attack by Houthi rebels in Yemen. And uh, yeah, that was pretty crazy last night. And today, things seem to be much calmer. As much as emotions were running high last night, uh, things have settled down a lot today. A lot, of, a lot of concern that things were going to escalate. But it was a limited exchange. As I said last night, in no way did it rise to the level that we saw when the United States went into Iraq with the shock and awe campaign, it wasn't like that. It was much more targeted, although I'm I'm seeing that as many as 60 different targets were hit. The Houthis are vowing to respond. And there was a lot of erroneous information that was coming out last night. This being one thing, you may recall, I kept saying, I don't know if I'm going to report this. I don't know if I'm going to report this. And this came out. Jackson Hinkle reporting that a U.S. ship was hit by Yemen's Houthis in the Red Sea. And he went on, as did some others, to report that that ship had been destroyed, not just attacked, but destroyed. I didn't run that. As it turns out, that was not accurate. But many other people did pick up on that and then retracted that later. So there was a lot of information coming coming out that just wasn't true. We have to be, I find it's difficult to determine at this point what's true, what isn't, and stay on top of the facts, especially in a breaking news situation. And that story will continue to develop. As I said last night, I think that's just the beginning of more escalation, unfortunately. I hope I'm wrong. Also tonight, and that is an extension of what's been going on in Gaza, and tonight we're seeing that Canada is saying that it will not support the premise of South Africa's case against Israel on the charge of genocide. The Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, says Canada won't be throwing its support behind South Africa in that regard. Uh, some people are concerned that that may spark an additional backlash, more uh, pushback from pro-Palestinian protesters. Um, and last night we saw a raised security alert by the United States in military, at military bases in Iraq and even around the world. And security officials in the U.S. from Homeland Security saying that there is a heightened risk now of terrorist attacks within the United States because of that last night. And now because of this, people are worried that Canada may see more unrest here at home. Well, 
Uh, all that being said, all this kind of ties into the way media works today. Let me take a quick break. And when we come back, our guests will join us to discuss the arrest of David Menzies, that rebel news reporter who was cuffed by that RCMP officer who was there to protect Canada's deputy prime minister. But, well, we'll have a discussion on whether that officer maybe went a little bit too far or not. Depends on your point of view. We'll be right back after this. Let's bring in our all-star panel. There's Gail Robertson, Chris Dacey, and Rob Stocky. Hello, folks. Hello, everyone. Hello. Great to Hi. have everybody here tonight. Thanks for joining us. I finally get to meet Chris. Chris, I've been following you for a while, so watching some of your things, especially during the Ottawa Convoy. So nice to meet you. Awesome. Yeah, nice to meet you. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Rob, I already know, so good to see you too, Rob. Good to see you, buddy. Yeah, so maybe we'll just go around the horn and I'll get you guys to just uh, introduce yourselves so that all of our viewers know who you are. And we'll start with Gail. Okay. Uh, well, my name is Gail Robertson and I am a recovering journalist. Uh, I am now, uh, have my own business, Gail Now. I have a show called Curious Minds. And I work as a public relations strategist, mostly in manufacturing, but I have an interest in many different areas. And uh, uh, as a recovering journalist, I'm fascinated by all things related to media and politics. And Chris, over to you. Hey, yeah, so um, I'm Chris Dacey. Uh, I was, I guess still am a carpenter. My previous life was a carpenter. Um, since uh, right around the time of the Freedom Convoy in 2022, um, I lived in Ottawa, so I started filming and I've, uh, I guess I'm kind of turning into a journalist, you might say. I don't know exactly what to call myself yet, but uh, I've really, uh, really been uh, diving into this, and I'm kind of starting to find my lane now. So I think I think I'm going to keep going down this this journalistic path, whatever that may take me. Yeah, well, I'd, I would call you a journalist. I think you're a sort of a a new form, new school journalist practicing a new form of journalism. And and Rob, you you have a background in policing. Uh, why don't you tell folks who you are? Sure, my name is Rob Stocky. I'm a retired policeman. I've also, I'm also a politician. I ran for the New Blue Party, and I'm a serial business entrepreneur, so I do a lot of things. But uh, very interested in what's happening today. I think probably the most important thing that I've ever done is, and I continue to do, is be a historian, studying politics, studying history, studying economics, and where we are today. So thanks for having me on your show. No, my, my privilege. Thank you. And uh, we're here, you know, the thing that brought us all together was this arrest of rebel news reporter, David Menzies, who um, 
was cuffed <laughs> uh, by an RCMP officer who uh, was there to protect Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland. Let's let's just set this up, I guess, first of all, so people can see exactly what happened. And and for anybody who has been under a rock and isn't aware, at least we'll we'll run the video first, and then we'll have the discussion. Freeland, how come the IRDC is not a terrorist group? Why is your government supporting Islamo you pushed into me. You bumped, I was just scrubbing with you. I've got my credentials here and you just bumped into me. So excuse Police, me. you're under arrest. What is your name in your badge? What, what is your name in your badge? You've been told you're under arrest. Why am I under arrest? He, 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 he blocked my way. What? I was just scrubbing uh, Christian Freeland. I'm a police officer. You're under arrest. What is your name and your badge number? Assaulting a police officer. How is that possible? Okay. Because you assaulted me three years ago when black men on that. You mean I was asking questions aggressively? No, no, your actions were. You were almost pushing everybody over. Lincoln, you got this on video, right? He's saying I'm pushing people over. That, that, that's an absolute falsehood. There were, there were feet were shuffling. So now it appeared that way. That's what you're saying, officer. Well, it appeared that was pushing I people. I wasn't. I didn't touch a single person. That was a little bit aggressive for what was happening. Get that. You got it. You got. You're under arrest. Please okay. Take the microphone out of my face. Well, okay, I, I'd like a, I'd like so an so ongoing record of this. Can I have the microphone? Can I have the microphone? Can I have the microphone? Can you give? I'm not I'm not Take your hand out. Why am I under arrest? I'm just doing my job. You don't need to resent. I don't have to say anything. I have nothing to hide, Welcome to Blackfaces Canada. This is what they do to journalists. I was merely scrumming Minister Freeland, and a RCMP officer blocked me, and evidently this is now a trumped-up charge of assault, folks. I didn't come here to cause any trouble. I came here to do my job, and now I'm handcuffed. This, this is your Canada now, folks. You know, this is the Gestapo taking blackface's orders. Wow. <laughs> Every time I watch that, I'm sorry. I like, just. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, you know what? I think we'll start with you, Chris, because you're out there on the front lines, in a manner yeah. of speaking. Um, almost daily and interacting with police, uh, practicing new form journalism, which is kind of what David Menzies does as well. He's got his own style. They have, you know, their own way of doing things over at Rebel News. You have your own way of doing it. And you've had a lot of interactions with police, um, especially in Ottawa and elsewhere. What do you make of that? What are your thoughts? Um, well, well, I was honestly like, I'm very, very shocked at this bit, at, at this point in life, but uh, I was even surprised a little bit by that. Um, like you say, I've had, I've had tons of experience with the RCMP and only once um, with, with the protection detail in particular. So, I mean, I've been within feet of Trudeau. Um, I've, I've asked Christia Freeland questions numerous times, um, different MPs. And for the most part, they're very obvious about what they're doing. 
like like there's if they're in close close protection, I believe they would call it. Like if they're they're surrounding and protecting the the VIP, it's very obvious how close you can get normally. They don't normally come out of nowhere, and particularly without saying anything. So in my experience, um, they've always either either with uh, you know just even meeting eyes or with their body language, or if we get a little too close, then they speak up. And uh, there's even been times for me where where we've talked ahead of time before the VIPs come out. They let me know whether they be coming out. They tell me we have to go this way. Just stay back from from where we are, and you'll be you know you'll be fine. You can ask your question. So I personally haven't had the same problems with with the protection detail. Um, I have had issues with other RCMP officers. Um, makes me think of about a year ago. Uh, maybe it was during the summer, anyways. When uh, I think it was when um, Clinton, Hillary Clinton, was in Ottawa for the Liberal Convention. We ended up me and uh, me and a woman I know, Christine Cameron, got through, saw Trudeau coming out of his office, and he was walking down to the Westin with his detail. I mean, he was going to take some pictures, and we literally followed him for three blocks. And she was giving him the gears. I was yelling questions at him, and we got almost to that area. And an RCMP officer came out of nowhere in that case and grabbed the woman. He kind of pushed her around. I asked if we were being detained. She scurried off. Um, so that was the closest I really got into it with the RCMP. But uh, I haven't seen anything like that from the detail. It seemed like it was uh, it was planned somewhat to me. I think he did it on purpose. And Gail, in, in all the years that you've been involved in journalism, have you ever seen anything like that? What, what, what are well, your impressions? Well, no, and I know you talked about uh, just before this talking about, you know, free press and there's a lot of talk about celebrating free speech, free freedom of the press. But I think it's only when you are agreeing with the current uh, uh, politicians. And that's the concern I have is that, you know, someone that comes from a journalism background. Yes, we I mean, you should be able to ask questions, but this was very strange how it all took place. And um, yeah, I, I, I was, I was kind of chuckling as watching it because I've seen this numerous times and each time I watch it, it almost seems farcical. I mean, it, it just seems mm -hmm. that come on, like it's so clear that whatever you may think of David Menzies. And I think this is something that is more at issue here is that it's the rebel news and He's getting under their skin to the point that they're now, you know, going after him. And I think that's, uh, you know, it's interesting because this is so on brand for the Rebel News that they are going to make lots of money from this. And uh, that's what I find interesting. You know, they're they're kind of going after him and it's actually helping them, not hurting Rebel News. But it's really hurt from a public relations perspective. This is definitely hurting the, you know, Christopher Freeland and the government and RCMP. I think it really puts them in a bad light and puts Rebel News as the heroes here, which is what they want. And Rob, with your background in policing and politics, I'm very interested in your perspective. Well, right off the bat, I'll tell you, if something is true, you're not afraid to have it explained. You're not afraid to have it made public. And that's one of the things with this government. They're so absolutely terrified of muckraker or independent journalists who are not receiving their money that they're handing out to the mainstream media because they can't control what kind of questions are going to be asked. And they're very, very, how should I say, they're terrified of rebel news because rebel news doesn't script their, doesn't script their narratives. They don't agree, the narratives don't agree with what the government wants people to hear. So by virtue of that, they can't control the questions. They are held to account and public opinion is their greatest adversary they're afraid of if the public actually gets an idea of what's going on that's their biggest fear and that's what david menzies does he asks the difficult questions 
he brings the issues to the forefront. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't ask the softball questions like, Mr. Trudeau, what's your favorite color? I mean, he asks real questions that Canadians really want to hear the answers to, and they don't want to give answers because there is no good answer that they could possibly give that makes them look good from everything they've done while they've been in office, in an office while they've been in office all this time. Yeah. As I watched that, it looked to me like the officer put his arm out to almost catch him, to just get get in the way so that he would be touched, so that, oh, there's assault. Just just touch him. Oh, that's assault. Uh, but my goodness, this just seems to be just over the top. Um, Rob? Uh, Rick, if I can just jump in for a second. From yeah. a policing point of view, it's it's pretty obvious what's happening here. The RCMP are assigned to the, the, the PMO protection detail. They are essentially acting as the thugs for the office. They're actually acting as the bouncers for Trudeau when he doesn't want to answer questions. And same with, obviously, Freeland knows that she's going to be held to account. So they're protecting those who pay them. That's exactly what their hired guns is all they are. And if you look at this from even a, um, a more sinister perspective, Trudeau's trying to take away the regular public's firearms, the people that are peaceful. Why is he doing this? He wants to, he wants to have his own police officers be the, the powerful ones in society. He wants his thugs to, be, to reign over everyone else. And that's what's actually happening here. It's, this is a gross use of police resources. It is absolutely shocking. And anybody that has any degree or love of freedom should be extremely concerned about what we're seeing with, with, the, with the Trudeau government. One step further, we, you know, I don't know if, we've, if you've talked about this on your show. Everybody here knows this, but it's, it's worth being said. Trudeau is trying to accredit certain journalists. And by virtue of Rebel News being there asking questions, even though they're accredited, they're, there's a Supreme Court, or, or sorry, a judge's decision that, that says they're accredited, they're trying to ignore that. And I hope this officer is held to account. I hope that Rebel News does take this battle. They have won in the past. I hope they win again. Does this? What does this do to public trust in policing? Well, I'm going to let the other two an, uh, answer in just a second, but I'll tell you this as a police officer. As a police officer that actually upheld the law, the one thing that police officers actually hate is a, is a, is a dirty police officer or someone who's not acting within the parameters of the law because it makes the rest of us look like fools. It takes away our credibility. And any member of the public that sees this, there's no way that any member of the public, unless they're, you know, they're pro-liberal or they have some sort of bias, would agree with what the officer has done. David Menzies absolutely did not do anything wrong. He did absolutely didn't assault the officer in any way, shape, or form. And all he did is what regular journalists do. They offer a microphone and, and offer the person a chance to comment. Christa, Christia Freeland did not comment. He asked her another question. She didn't, did not comment again. And that sort of pressure obviously runs afoul with the PMO. So they have their thugs interfering with legitimate journalists. Yeah, and Gail, you have a, a background in PR. You said it's a public, it's bad PR, right? Okay. And I agree with what Rob said in terms of how this shines a light on the police, because I think most police, I've had dealings with them, are, you know, they're very helpful. And in this case, this puts 
the whole RCM. And sadly, it's like any profession, right? You know, and it's like the one bad apple, right? It sort of spreads. And sadly that, and I, I did read this somewhere, heard that that police officer, apparently his nickname is the bouncer. Uh, so, you know, again, it's that, that idea of, um, as Rob said, kind of that thug mentality. And I think the police are trying to get away from that, you know, uh, perspective. And I think this really does a disservice, you know, to police, to the RCMP. And from a PR perspective, if I was, if they called me in, which they probably wouldn't, but if they called me in for a consultation, I would say, you know, step into the spotlight, take ownership, apologize and say, this is not what we stand for. This is not the RCMP. And I think Krista Freeland should speak to this. I know she said she's, uh, this is separate from her. And we all know that that's not the case. This is, they they are talking, she has full control over being able to step in and, and take ownership of this. That's the other thing in any leadership role, you know, we have a duty as leaders to always take uh, that position that, you know, and apologize. And that would diffuse things so quickly if she, and the other thing I would do, and I know she'd probably never do this, but I would recommend sit down with David and say, okay, you know what? We're going to give you an interview. That would diffuse so much of the rebel news. They may not even want to do the interview, but I would still offer it. You know, it sort of takes the steam out. And, um, and this is what we need to do. We need more people to apologize, to be responsible and to say, you know, if you make a mistake, okay. In this case, I think what likely happened is that police officer might have just, in the heat of the moment, if we give the benefit of the doubt, maybe just overstepped. So let's, if we say, let's be positive here and say just, hey, we overstepped, we apologize. And sadly, we're in a society right now that no one wants to take ownership and be responsible and be respectful. Chris, do you find that independent journalists like yourself and like, David Menzies, are you treated differently? Oh, definitely. And I mean, even, I guess even amongst uh, independent journalists, it's like anything, I guess there's kind of a tier system. Um, I found though that, you know, like before I was just kind of covering things, right? So there was a lot of people yelling and screaming and, and those videos do well, you know, people yelling at the prime minister, but uh, actually spending time with Lincoln Jay, who, uh, who recorded that video, um, I learned quite a bit from him and the way that they kind of weighed out. And, and sometimes if you can stay calm enough in, in the situation, then just get that question out there. That's far more powerful. Um, and it seems to me that that when you do do that, those videos get viral. Like they definitely see it. Um, they know they know who we are. So then then it's having an impact, right? When Trudeau would hear us all screaming that, he just waved narcissistically as things progressed, and they started realizing that I'm going to be dropping some serious questions, whatever you know, whatever may be going on. Um, their their approach changed, I think. So. Yeah, I, I mean. From my perspective, I think the the worst part of this is the the damage that this has done in terms of public trust in policing. Okay. This just undermines it more, and especially since the pandemic and the lockdowns and people, you know, kids being arrested on skating rinks and what we saw happen during the Freedom Convoy with pro, you know peaceful protesters being assaulted. I would say assaulted by by police. Just all of these things. Now more than ever, we we need <clears throat> positive actions and work to be done to um, to, to repair the the damage in that relationship between the public and and police. Any other thoughts on that? Can we get? Yeah, back actually. To that? Yeah, well, that's something that I've uh, 
I've struggled with for a long time. You know, my whole life, I was, I was always, I have lots of military family. I have friends that have been in the police force. Um, most, I don't think anymore, but um, always had a healthy respect for law enforcement my whole life um, until, until the convoy really. And like that was completely shattered at all levels. I mean, PPS, I kind of, the Parliament uh, Protection Service, they didn't really beat up our friends. So I kind of was had a little bit better with them, but it took me a long time before I could even be around police without my heart rate going up, basically being, you know, triggered, so to speak. Um, and I spent a lot of time over the last almost two years um, trying to to rehumanize and build relationships with with Ottawa police, with, with whatever police are around. And um, at times we've made some real progress with uh, with particular officers and uh, and getting to know people. And when incidents like this happen, or we also often still, unfortunately, have incidents with Ottawa police um, and Ottawa bylaw services and, and a few different other things. So every time one of these happens and, and I've made some progress, I just find it so deflating. You know, I am out there attempting to, to at least personally build relationships. And if we do do that and our events go smoothly, people see me interacting with the police, that has helped that on, on a larger scale as well. But when something like this happens, it's just like, you know, it takes you out of the knees. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think to back to um, community policing initiatives. I remember in in elementary school having, you know, the community relations officer come out. And when I was a kid, kindergarten, police officer came to speak to the class and, you know, show the kids that you shouldn't, you don't need to be afraid of a police officer, as people in many other countries are, police are there to help you. Uh, it's very simple stuff. And yet, here it is, it's just, that is shattered. And Rob, how did we get here? You know, you bring up a good point, Rick. When I was uh, a young policeman, I started in 1997. And one of the first volunteer jobs I had was being the community resource officer for immigrant Visible Minority Women Against Abuse. It's, a, it's an organization. And for eight years, I was speaking at this group as they would have new immigrants coming in. And I would explain to them that this is Canada. You can trust the police here. If you have a complaint, the police here aren't going to rape you because in many countries, that's what would happen if you were alone with them. They were the thugs of the, of the politicians. And we're seeing that now. I mean, let's unpack this for a second. Let's look at the background of Trudeau. He comes from a background where his father celebrated communism. His brother makes movies for Iran. Um, he, he idolizes Castro and at the funeral of Castro, talked about how Castro served his people, not that he was a dictator. So if you look at the tactics that Trudeau's deploying, he's deploying the tactics and the, 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 the method of control the way those he idolizes do. And that's why it's becoming so dangerous. And my family escaped communism. I'm the first generation born Canadian here. So I'm well aware of the tactics that were deployed in, in communist regimes. And we're seeing all of that here. And the, and the scary thing is, is if you look at what Trudeau is saying, I mean, this is really scary. If you really want to know what he's thinking, look at who he quotes when he speaks. His, his, uh, his MPs, they quote Joseph Goebbels. They quote Joseph Goebbels saying, it doesn't matter if it's a lie, if you repeat it enough, people will believe it to be the truth. That's climate Barbie. And if you look at Trudeau during the pandemic, he was talking about what do we do with these people? They're taking up space. Well, who's he quoting? He's quoting the, the Hitler's regime. And the way he's dealing with his police, I mean, this is a really dangerous time for Canada. This man is, is extremely dangerous. And, and like Jordan Peterson had pointed out, it's not the strong man that you have to worry about. It's the weak man. And Trudeau is extremely weak. He has no real educational background. He has no real skills of leadership 
he was essentially put into office because of his name and his his uh his position was bought with money in advertising because people you know people paid for advertising to put him at the forefront of the electoral race but what does he actually give to canada our prices are rising he's printing money we're we're inflation's out of control our our, our security is 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 poor public confidence in our policing and and, and, and many of our institutions our healthcare institutions our policing institutions public safety institutions they're all failing i mean i can't think of a single person i know who's not a union member of the government by the way but a single person i know a real person in real society who actually agrees with what the trudeau government has done in the past uh two terms that he's had in office so like i said if you look at history and if you look at what's happening economically to canada what's happening public safety wise what's happening with our healthcare systems Yes, in some degree, they're a provincial responsibility, but Doug Ford and, and, and Justin Trudeau, I mean, there's a love fest every time they're on camera together. So I, I think there's a real issue with our, our political institutions at this point. And the only real the only real choice that we have at this point is, is uh, I'm just going to say this, you may agree or disagree, is Pierre Polyev. That's the only real the only real choice we have in this next election because he's got the numbers he's got the he's got the people behind him and i think job number one is getting rid of the trudeau government i mean that's what we absolutely have to do if we have any any hope of restoring canada to what it was just 10 years ago interesting i came across this this uh, cartoon today or this uh, artwork uh political cartoon um and you kind of went from communism over to fascism, you know, from one breath to the other. And I've been saying for a long time, Marxism, fascism converging into globalism. And I keep calling it communo-fascism. It's about authoritarianism, right? It's um, uh, kind of a, it's a dictatorial approach to, to government, autocratic. Uh, Gail, have you seen a, a shift in that way? Well, one of the things that I've noticed, and I'll I'll say this as, you know, because as a recovering journalist, this would not put me in probably good stead with even some of my friends that I still have in mainstream media. But one of the things I will say that as a journalist that I noticed uh, right from when I was at school through to working in journalism is that at times I sometimes didn't always fit in. And now I understand a bit more of why that was. And, you know, listen to someone like Chris and watching what happened during the convoy is there's definitely kind of an elitist approach to coverage of things right and that's something that i've always felt we needed to get you know broaden that scope and be able to hear from different voices and one of the things i noticed early on with the convoy was this very much an attack on workers and on you know as i said people that wear work boots and you know um aren't don't fit into a certain mold that media may think of as being, you know, um, the smart people. And I hear this all the time. They go, well, you know, it's these people, these dumb people that are, you know, supporting, that aren't supporting someone like Justin Trudeau. And I'm like, this isn't, this is very disturbing to me because I've always believed that, you know, often the smartest people are the people with the least uh, formal education. And the reason I say that is a lot of the formal education we get is that it teaches us to see things in a very narrow way. Um, and I once lived on, I lived on Pili Island and I can tell you the smartest people had the least amount of formal education in terms of being able to solve problems. And it's really taught me to 
lean in and listen to people like, you know, I have a university degree and people have to go, oh, you have a university. I said, trust me, that's not something necessarily to feel that I, I see that makes me any better because often it reduces our ability to see that broader perspective. Now, I am probably the first person in my family to have that post-secondary education. So I grew up very much in that working class, you know, um, uh, family and have a lot of my friends and family that, um, you know, have worked in construction, have worked in farms. Um, a very good friend of mine grew up on a farm and she's one of the smartest people I know. Right. So, yeah, I, I just wanted to say that to sort of set a scene that and it's sometimes it's not necessarily intentional. I just think that people that come into the media often come from a little bit different background and often aren't able to see from different perspectives, even though that was when I was at school, we were supposed to do that, you know, be able to see different views. But if you look at most people and I started looking around a lot of journalists, I knew and went, Hmm, this is interesting. What is their background? What is their experience? And a lot of journalists haven't had different work experience. They come in and they start, you know, there's a lot of judgment. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think your perspective ties into the rise of populism and, and Chris, you, I'm sure you can relate to that because uh, I mean, your journalism, new form journalism is very freedom focused. You're, you're covering a lot of the freedom movement. That is, uh, you know, I think uh, a cornerstone of the, the populist political movement and growth in Canada. What's your perspective on what Gail was saying? Is, is journalism changing? Is, is the political landscape changing? Oh, it's, it's definitely, the journalism for sure is changing. Um, like, I guess with the different people coming into independent journalism, like, I mean, I'm coming from, from a carpentry kind of self-employed background. Um, so I'm going to bring a very different set of perspectives and experience than somebody who is coming from, from perhaps a university educated perspective, especially if they're all coming out of the same type of university. Um, you know, I guess there is some, some, a few benefits. There's pros and cons to everything. Like, um, you know, if your university, at least it used to, it helps people communicate, you learn to write, to talk. Um, those are things I'm still learning, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, in theory, in theory, right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, definitely, definitely bringing people in from, from various fields before, um, then you're going to get a lot more perspective. And I think that, that the more actual, I like, mean, that's the diversity we want, right. Diversity of opinion, um, and, and the natural kind, not a forced kind. Yeah. That's really key. I did want to say that like diversity of is can mean many different things. It's not only about this narrow view of diversity. We need to have diversity of people that, you know, um, ha, like I said, carpenter, farmers, people, truckers, all of these people. I mean, you know, when people were commenting about truckers not being smart, I'm like, what do you think? They're in their trucks all these times. What do you think they're doing? They're often listening, learning. Uh, uh, you know, I've listened, I listened to uh, quite a bit to someone like Chris Barber became really fascinated by, you know, his, his knowledge and also his growth in that, you know, he even says he's not the same person he was many years ago, his views on many things. And, and I respect people that can step up and say, you know, I've learned a lot. I've changed how I see the world. I've changed how I see the world from over the years. I mean, I've had experience as a reporter, experience as a union leader, experience as a manager, experience as an entrepreneur. I ran a bed and breakfast. I've so, you know, I've seen many different things and my views on the world allow me to now say what I'm saying because I've had 
a diversity of experiences as well. You know, Rob, it, do you think police and politicians are having a, a more difficult time these days or, or are they struggling to come up with a way to deal with the, the broader scope of journalism and who is a journalist? I mean, back when you know, I was with mainstream media, social media wasn't as much of a thing. And you would show up at an event and everyone would have their credentials and that guy's with the CBC and oh, that guy's with the Globe and Mail and that guy's at the National Post or the Windsor Star, whatever, right? So, oh, those are the journalists. But today, anybody with a, a phone can be a citizen journalist. Uh, there's no license that someone has to have to be a journalist. When they talk about credentials, all a credential is, is it's permission to enter into a private property or building where an event is taking place where you've then been given permission to enter and participate to cover uh, a privately run event. But out on the street, anybody can practice journalism. Uh, have police and politicians been able to wrap their heads around this or do you think they're struggling with it? Well, I think there's this is a double, a two-headed dragon. The first one is the police. I don't think the police really care. I think, you know, the police are, are much like us. They want to know the truth. They want to know what's going on. Aside from what we've just seen with Christia Freeland and the RCMP involvement, I mean, I, I, I know how the dynamics work. One officer made a call. The other officers may or may not have seen it. They, they, you know, they, they may be thinking, maybe, I, maybe he saw something I didn't, so I'm going to back him up at this point. Mm -hmm. That's how they're all thinking at this point. But when it comes to the actual politicians, they're the ones that are scared with independent media because they have no method of control. And especially when it comes to social media, I mean, look at what uh, what Chris is doing. He is at many of these events. He's at he, he, he's, he's giving an unvarnished perspective. I mean, when you watch Chris Christopher's stuff, you feel like you're there. You feel like you're watching it. And no matter what happens, like think about uh, regular journalism. If a journalist in a mainstream media journalist, uh, journalist organization does something or says something or offends the person they're, they're interviewing, they're done. They can be replaced with somebody else. So they have a very, they have a very tight grip on them for what questions they can ask and, and what's going to be shown. Things are edited. We've seen how the media has, has protected Trudeau for so long. So many of his gaffes and scandals receive zero attention. Whereas independent journalists don't have those uh, those yokes on them they are they are it is really the wild west and it's the independent journalists themselves that are, are 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 either gaining or losing credibility in the public eye and i think for a large degree what has happened is many of these independent journalists are actually more credible than the mainstream media because they are showing you the unvarnished truth live as it happens asking questions that the actual that most people want to know the answers to and the mainstream media organizations are doing that. I mean, you look at how many people the mainstream media organizations are laying off constantly. There's a real churn there because like, there, there just isn't a lot of a lot of freedom to report and a lot of freedom of expression. And how many how many um, how many times have we seen the reporting from other news outlets like like True North and Rebel News and and all these outlets where people are actually starting and, and Keen Bext, people are actually paying for that media and if you look at what's actually happening with that paid media 
you're forced to get global on your cable subscription. You're forced to get CTV and you're forced to get CP24. You can't cancel them. You can only block them. But it's much more difficult to get Fox News or, you know, you don't see uh, Rebel News have their own channel. Why is that? This is what people want. Well, the reason is very simple. They, the, the politicians want to control the narrative. They want to control the message. And independent journalism doesn't allow them to do that. And that's why I think most, more and more people are signing on and thinking, hey, you know what, I'm going to watch uh, Epic Times. I'm going to watch uh, uh, True North News because I'm actually getting a perspective that I'm not getting on all those other channels, which all carry the exact same narrative. I don't even know why there are different channels. Interesting that you, you, you touch on that, because before the reason we have Rebel News is because before there was Rebel News, there was Sun TV and they were not given full carriage on cable systems. So it wasn't financially viable. And we we wound up with this independent media organization over here, which is still a thorn in the side of the government. And rightly so. And in that way, they're doing a good job. And 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 Chris, what do you think of all that? Um do you, have, do you have any comments? Um, actually, just touching on one thing that you said um, about the interaction with the police, Rob. So, like in my experience, it seems that once one officer makes a decision, like like everybody just goes with that decision right away. Is that is that normally what happens? So, like if your partner say decide, okay, I'm arresting this guy. At that point, everybody around goes with that, and then they figure it out later, type of thing. I was curious about that. There, there is in my in all the years I've been a police officer. There's only been one time that I remember where some officer did something that was just so way out in, in whatever field that other people were like, no, 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 that's not how this is going to go down. And yeah. that officer, I mean, there was a big conversation about that afterwards. That officer was was completely out of line for what that officer had done. Um, but for the most part, that's what happens. I mean, you're working with these men and women side by side. You know that everyone has a set of eyes but you could have been looking to the left, someone else could have been looking to the right, or someone else may have been obstructed. This officer saw something that you may or may not have seen. I can tell you when I operated, the credibility of the people I worked with was a huge factor. There were people that, you know, if they said, this is what we're gonna do, I'd be like, just a moment, let's talk about this. Let's talk, let's talk this through. And other people, if they said, arrest that guy, I, for what? And they tell me, it would be done because I know they saw something I'd be there to assist, whatever. And the same thing with myself. If I said to somebody, we need to get that guy or arrest that guy, it would be done because the credibility is there. But you also you also know that in policing, if you are acting with, you're acting on the, on the word of someone who's not credible, you could be putting yourself into trouble. That's why credibility is so important. So yeah. for the most part, to answer your question, yes, I would say if one officer, if one officer makes uh, an, an action, the other officers will be there to back them up. And then it's up to that officer who initiated the action to justify what they had done. And it only takes one time. It only takes one time for them to screw up or to put you in a position where you shouldn't have been in that position. And then nobody's going to follow their lead anymore. So, yeah, that's, I find that quite interesting. So, so something I've noticed happening um, in Ottawa quite a bit is, uh, I mean, this is kind of, I think maybe how the, the government of the powers that be are, are trying to figure out how to deal with, with the likes of us and with, with protesters but there seems to be top-down orders coming which i guess that's always the way they come but um they'll often use either bylaw enforcement or or one or two sets of officers that will come in and generally they'll do something like they often come after me trying to kind of rile me up right because if i react then suddenly they have me on something right 
they'll come in and they'll go after somebody for a megaphone or, or often a woman or an elderly man or a veteran. They start antagonizing people. One, one or two officers, I'm not saying this is most people, it's generally a very small group. And I mean, we know who they are at this point, but they'll come in and initiate some sort of contact, try to get everyone all riled up and then escalate that into all sorts of other things. And before long, you know, somebody's, somebody's hands on and, and everything's over with. So it's, uh, it's kind of, that's a really strange thing for me to see. Um, the other thing that's happening in Ottawa is that when these interactions happen, so um, whether it's bylaw or OPS, if there's any kind of charge or, or things escalate to a charge, the people that get charged not only take the charge, when they get charged, often what they'll actually do is, is put you in a car, drive you X number of blocks away to some random area and re- release you with no charges. But by the time they do that, everything's over with and, and they've removed the problem, so to speak, um, with no paper trail either in that case. Um, when they do charge you, however, they're tacking on these 500 meter or, or area restriction bans to everybody. So that's something I've never seen in my life. We have crime all over the city. I've never heard of one instance anywhere else where somebody catches a charge but also gets banned, say, for, uh, you know, for 500 meters from some random intersection or for, uh, so that, that's basically what they're doing is, is weaponizing these systems to, to take away our ability to, to either cover, like to, to do journalism or to lawfully protest. It is, it is. They're absolutely weaponizing our justice system. And the, the consequence of that is public, public confidence in our systems is now starting to wane because they are playing these games. And there was, I mean, when I was in policing, there was a lot of credibility. If, if a police officer said something or went, you know, later charge, there was a lot of credibility in, in that charge. And it was really an uphill battle for the accused in some cases to kind of, uh, you know, to, to, to move through the, through the charges because there was a lot of credibility. I'm not saying everybody obviously is found guilty, but there, for the most part, back then, compared to today, there was a lot more credibility back then. Now there's, especially with the RCMP coming in with the horses during the convoy and the way that the the, pro, the the peaceful protesters were dispersed, how they weaponized bouncy castles, saying that they're that the uh, the truckers are looking to start a revolution. I mean, it was just ridiculous. At first, people thought at first people thought there may be some credibility to it because the average North American wasn't used to the weaponization of journalism the way it has been done now. But it's like anything, people are catching on. And this is why they're moving away from mainstream media because they know it's propaganda. And the same thing with the credibility of police. Under this new chief that we have in Ottawa, I mean, I see him at the prayer breakfast. I see him at, at different events. I attend those events as well. Uh, obviously not as a police officer anymore, but they're doing the right thing interacting with the community, but they're doing the wrong thing in the public eye with the way they're treating people who are pr- legitimately protesting, which is as Canadians, it's our right to do. So obviously, protesting and public relations, there's a lot of weight that our protests are carrying, and they don't like that because it's a big public relations threat. I'd like to get perspective from, from you guys on you know, the way things kind of used to be between media and police and, and the way things are now, because I think, Chris, you've needed to learn how to interact with police um, in, in a completely new and evolving uh, media and political landscape. And, and Gail, you come from a background where, you know, where I come from, where I think things were a lot different. So let's start with you and, and just tell me what kind of relationship relationships did you have with police before? I mean, I would have contacts and they would sometimes give me tips and there was trust building, but it was a different kind of a 
environment? Well, I think number one is that we're in a different world now, right? And we can't expect the same things to happen. And this is what I think a lot of people like are including politicians. They're making these decisions, you know, the online news act, they're trying to like, they have no understanding of this digital world. And I still see people like report media, people I know, friends I know that are like, should know better are they're blaming meta and Google for not being able to put news links on those like platforms. And I'm like, that's okay. And it doesn't mean I'm pro meta or pro Google. I have a lot of issues with them in terms of censorship, but it, it wasn't them that came up with these rules. So all of these things are happening. And I think a lot of people are confused, but here's the other thing that's happening. And what's scaring them is that people now are finding other ways to get their news and get information. So they're watching a show like this, or they're going and listening to a Joe Rogan. And, and these people are doing phenomenally well. And they, and you know what, the more they try to suppress it and pull it in, the stronger those other platforms are getting. That's what I find fascinating is that we are in a different world. And, you know, it's like, I, I often liken it to parenting, right? If you try to control, especially a teenager, right? You have to find that happy medium and that balance. Because if you try to control, what happens is people will find other ways and they may be quiet, but they're going to find alternatives to get their news. So, the biggest thing I noticed as, you know, where I'm at now versus when I was a reporter, you can't compare that world to now because now we have social media, we have different podcasts, we have a different way of doing things. And that is very frightening to the people in positions of authority that are making decisions. And that's why they're trying to do the various, these online news acts. They're trying to say, how can we control this? The problem is, and I've said this, is that what happens when the tables get turned? You may think the people that are all, you know, happy about the emergency act. I think what happens when that's going to get turned on a group that you are part of? And that's what no one seems to understand. And I shake my head at this because I'm like, if you can't cherry pick what topics and issues, you know, that uh, you want people to get beat up over because one day that could get turned around. So consistency and you know, the, how things, how the law can be applied to, to everyone. And one thing I just wanted to add about uh, David Menzies is that that's exactly what happened. He was arrested and then they just took him nearby and he was released behind a school nearby apparently. So, I mean, but it puts that kind of, it got him out of the way. And I think they thought, oh, we'll maybe set some sort of, um, you know, practice here. We'll, we'll show him. And instead it got, now it's blown up and they picked, I think, the wrong person to uh, to do that, too. And Chris, how have you learned to interact with police? I, I watch a lot of your work. Um, your approach is a lot different than mine ever was or probably ever would be. You're you. you I mean, you, you get right in there and you ask those questions and you're out on the street. And when the politicians are walking down the sidewalk, you do kind of what David Menzies just did. You just walk up and start asking questions. But the cops get in there and you've cut. I guess you've had to kind of learn where the boundary lines are, how close you can get and how you can interact with police without getting into a without getting arrested. How have you learned where those boundary lines are? Uh, I mean, for me, I guess it, it really was trial and error. Um, 
you know, I, I started out by just, just putting myself in, in the middle of a lot of a lo- quite interesting and, and dynamic, crazy situations. Um, and I've been in some pretty, pretty big crowds with, with a lot of police. You know, I've, I've had Toronto police horses come and bump into us and surround us. I've had uh, Ottawa, Ottawa um, public order units, you know, pushing us around. There's times where I've been thrown in the street, thrown on police cars. Um, it, uh, it was really, really chaotic at first. Um, as I did more of this, it started just naturally. You start to, to see how they're behaving and where the lines are. You start to know um, who they'll protect and who they won't. Um, and as things went farther, there were certain officers, particularly liaisons at first, that I started building relationships with. And, and over time, I've actually built some some half-decent, at least working relationships with quite a few officers, um, some of which have given me some good advice, helped me learn some law, um, things to, to do and not to do. And, uh, you know, one of them saved me when that op- RCMP officer came out um, at me and Christine. And uh, not only did he not say if we were detained or not, I thought we were okay, but he came in my face, like got right in my face. And uh, he was threatening to uh, to charge me with, First with, I think, disturbing the peace, and uh, and if I wouldn't leave, uh, obstruct. And just thankfully, from a conversation I had had uh, earlier that week with an, with an officer and a bylaw officer, they explained to me that uh, they can't be the disturbed in a disturbed call. So if that RCMP officer thinks, you know, uh, I'm disturbing the peace, he can't be the one that thinks that. I mean, he can think it, but that can't be the basis. And uh, I told him that, told his partner that, and they actually kind of disengaged and got in their cars. So, I mean, it's a tricky, tricky thing to navigate. Um, I've also... It's hard for me. So I spent quite a bit of time working with the liaisons and, and trying to work in good faith, trying to keep these things as on the rails as possible. I've also had, unfortunately, times where I don't want to get into too many details where I feel pretty betrayed by some of these people as well. So, you know, there may be people that are that are trying to do like me and work in good faith. And there's times where stuff happens that's probably not their call or that they don't have control over with, you know, but it it ends up having an effect. I'm trying to work and we're trying to do stuff. And then uh, you have some officers come in and grab a guy or tase an old man in the street or, or various things. And sometimes that, uh, that really undoes some of the work we're trying to do. Yeah. Any thoughts from you, Rob? Well, I think when I was in policing, the biggest strength police officers had or policing in general as an institution had was that it was impartial. It was service to the public without passion or prejudice, just to the letter of the law. And what we're seeing now is police using the law is a method to bully and to protect politicians who don't want to answer questions. And I think it's a failure to the average member of the public. It's a failure of both institutions, both the political institution and the policing institution. And the sad part is, is there's a lot of rank and file officers who are actually really, really good officers, but the behavior of a small amount, a small contingent and the leadership is really putting that, uh, confidence of the public in jeopardy, and that's a huge disservice both to the public and to the police officers who are who are who are genuinely good officers who are trying to do the right thing. You know, the other day I was in the uh, Detective Helen Groot trial. The past couple of days, two days ago, I was there, and so many of my friends who are officers, they all tell me the same thing. Rob, you got out at a good time. It is hell now. It is not what it was. And, and I know that because it's, it's a consistent and constant message that I'm hearing from all of my former colleagues. So I, I think that, like I said, the root of all this is politics. The, the, current, the current prime minister and his, his uh, MPs, the, the government has to be changed. There's not going to be any difference. There's not going to be any improvement until Justin Trudeau is out of office. That's the only way things are going to improve. And I'm really hoping that the next administration or the next government 
holds this this prime minister to account. I think there's a lot of corruption. I think there's a lot of there's treason that uh, there's there's many acts of treason that we can point to, whether it's you know the the forced jabs on a population that are we're, we're seeing that are hurting people now. I mean, I mean I could there's a I don't have the list in front of me, but there's just so many. There's so even even the WEF. This is a foreign entity that is influencing the government, not working for the benefits of Canadians. That's extremely dangerous. That's a form of treason. That's another form of treason. So I really would like this prime minister to have his day in court and uh, answer to the charges because something's got to be done. Well, he has described Canada as the world's first post-nation state, right? So uh, his allegiance doesn't appear to be nationalistic in any sense. It's globalistic. Um, is policing, I guess in your view, it is politicized. Will police shift their mindset simply with a change of government? Well, well you know what, I'm just going to, before I answer that question, I'm going to answer a question that you didn't even ask yet. One of the difference, you know, I, I hear this question a lot and, and I hear the public asking, why don't the police do something? Why doesn't some officer arrest them and do something? And I hear this so often. And I think there's a real uh, misunderstanding on how the, the uh, I'm going to call it the justice system, but it's more of a legal system, and how it works. And essentially, even if a police officer lays a charge, it's up to the Crown attorney to push that charge through the courts. And the Crown can withdraw any charge at any time before any judge. And we know that many of these, these uh, Crown attorneys and judges, they're political appointees. So if they're appointed by a government that's corrupt, do you really think that they're going to go against a government that has appointed them? It's very unlikely. And we've seen that we've seen that happen with many of these charges that were laid during the convoy. None of them should have ever seen the light of day. They were fake charges. Then you have Tamara Leach, who's been charged with mischief. How long has her trial gone? How much time has she served in jail? Whereas people who are charged with murder are out within days on bail. I mean, it's not difficult. It's right in our faces, seeing the, politi the, 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 the politicization, is that the right way of saying it? Politicization? Of, uh, of our institutions. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it is getting scarier and scarier. I mean, we are where we are right now. But if you study history, you see the, the direction we're going. And it's going to become much worse if more people in the public don't start getting politically involved, don't start supporting candidates, don't start helping with canvassing, they do, if they don't start making sure that the votes that are that are tabulated match the paper copies of what the machines are spitting out. There are so many ways that I, I've been seeing that our institutions have been corrupted. And of course, it all comes from the top. It all comes from the WEF. There's a lot of money there. It's not difficult if you think about it. I mean, politicians, you know, to the average person make a lot of money, but in the grand scheme of things, they don't. And when you see people like Justin Trudeau who are supposed to be only making you know, two to three hundred thousand dollars a year to be the one hundred seventy eight thousand dollars a year is the salary. There you go. Yet his bank accounts are showing that he's in the tens or hundreds of millions. I mean, I've lost count. I don't even know where he is right now. How is that possible? How is that possible that he's making that sort of money? Where is that money coming from? Well, it's it, it's very simple. This The people that paid media and paid for his advertising to become prime minister are now bribing him to put these policies forward that the average Canadian doesn't want. So, like I said, this is a this is another treasonous behavior, and there are people that would come forward. There are witnesses that would come forward, 
but they have to feel, they have to know that they're going to be protected. They have to feel that if they do come forward, that they're not going to be suffering for the rest of their lives because they're being honest. So there's a, like I said, the only way this is going to change is through a change of government and having a, a new government that is honest and accountable to its to the public. And just to add that, I think, you know, back in the day, it used to be, I know for media, at one point you could take gifts and then they changed it in media newsrooms that you couldn't accept, I mean, a lot of things, right? Because they didn't want to have the influence. And I think, you know, that's a real concern right now when there's, you know, open season, it seems on accepting various things. And we just saw this, I mean, with our prime minister staying at a $9,000 a night uh, place over the holidays. I mean, that I, that's not just, hey, you can stay at my house, you know, a friend. That's a that's a business. And um, so these are these are the things that start to get people, you know, losing trust and faith in the systems when you see those types of things happening. And uh, yeah, that's that was concerning to me. And, and now the latest news is that the ethics commissioner did not approve. I mean, what a mess. What a mess. What a mess. Yeah, let's let's look at let's. I mean, in psychology, there's um there's a uh, a doctrine of what you see is all there is, and that's how the human mind functions. So when Bev Oda had a twenty three dollar glass of orange juice, and it made every news agency to smear the conservatives, and I'm not, I don't want to come here, you know, I'm pushing the conservatives or any other party. What I'm just, I'm just looking at history here, a twenty three dollar glass of orange juice which pretty much derailed the conservatives for the next election because it happened right near an upcoming election. Made the conservatives look, They really painted the conservatives as, as a real party of elites and, and completely disjointed from the regular public. Whereas you have the prime minister, $9,000 a night or whatever, how many thousands of dollars a night for a certain, you know, one night? This is a much more than a glass of orange juice. And the hundreds of thousands that are spent on alcohol for his trips just in the plane alone. And then you have, I mean, if you watch different media when the, his plane was in India and it was grounded, you you listen to that, you listen to our prime minister and the Canadian media talking about, oh, it's a it's a technical problem with the plane. But you look at Indian news and it's because they found drugs on the plane. The, the drug sniffing dogs um, were were had reasonable grounds to believe that there's drugs on the plane. That's why the plane was being held. And I know who I believe when it comes to uh, the, these these reports. So, like I said, the, the the government we have right now is not a, a democratic government. It's a tyrannical government. It was democratically put into office, but essentially it's a tyrannical government. And every time you look at a communist government, that's how they get into power. They're voted in and they don't leave. So we really need to, as, as a public, if we're genuinely upset about what's going on, we absolutely have to get politically involved. And for a lot of people... It's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a jump. Most, it's sad, but democracy fails when people don't participate. And so it, why it's so critical. Is it your view then, Rob, that the, the, the Trudeau government is using lawfare and creative legislation and other tools like that in an inappropriate ways in order to manipulate public opinion, um, coerce people in ways that maybe they're not even aware of in order to just retain power so that they can get around democracy in in ways that are not maybe obvious to the public it's it's not my suspicion it's it's i'm confident in that i mean even mark zuckerberg has admitted that uh, the democrats in the u.s 
have used Facebook as a platform. They've had they've installed their own agents to censor stories that would be unfavorable to to um, to Democrats, yet um, push stories that would be unfavorable to Republicans. So there is certainly a manipulation of media and even getting into media. I'm sure Gail will be able to uh, comment on this, but if you want to get into you want to get into media, they make sure before you get in that you are of the liberal mindset. And I'm, and I'm talking about capital L liberal, not small L liberal. They, they want to make sure that you're going to toe the line, that you actually agree with the things that they're doing and, and what's being said. We're very black. I mean, in, in the work that I do, I know that there are a lot of journalists that don't think that way. It's nice that we have uh, journalists on the inside that are not going to be towing the line. Uh, we do have other people in other institutions that are not towing the line. They're just waiting for the, the right opportunity. But there's a lot of people that are very upset about what's going like. You can probably tell I am too. I'm very upset about what's happening with our government. And uh, like I said, I, I cannot stress it enough that democracy fails when people don't participate and we and more people need to participate in democracy. That way it'll restore confidence in our institutions. Gail? Yeah, well, and I think at one point it was more about the ownership of the media that directed sort of some of the content. And I would say in more recent years, it seems to be more about the funding, right? Because now we have, and this is again, this shift, we've gone from where, you know, media, mainstream media was seen, you know, they used to make money and and then all of a sudden things went off the rails because of digital and social media. So now the, uh, the, the direction is given more from a government perspective. And what's interesting is, you know, we talked about Tamara Lich and Chris Barber and, you know, I've been following this since, and I started following it really on TikTok, interestingly enough, when I started watching what was happening in the movement across Canada. And, and I thought, wow, this is, I mean, I was fascinated by watching some, not in mainstream media, but in, you know, social media. And then when it got to Ottawa, all of a sudden there was lots of mainstream coverage, but it seemed to not really represent what people who were, you know, I call it boots on the ground were seeing. Because I talked to a lot of people that went there and that's where they lost a lot of <clears throat> media because they were going and seeing firsthand. And then they'd see what was in the media and going, that doesn't compute. So what's interesting now is the lack of mainstream coverage of the Tamara Lich and Chris Barber trial, because you would think in all that media coverage, now they'd want to follow through. And that's the disconnect, right? Um, and that's someone like myself. That's what I question. I go, why did that get dropped all of a sudden? Cause we now have people on mischief charges um, being dragged through this long onerous system uh, process and yet there's other people getting out. Like to me, that's why people have lost faith in media. They've lost faith in the justice system, in police. Like there's trust is eroded on so many levels. But what it is doing is opening up, you know, people like Chris Dacey and people like you, Rick, because people now are wanting to get other information and not and, and now they're going, wait a minute, something's not adding up here. And it's an interesting time right now as, you know, I would consider myself someone nonpartisan. So like, I kind of look at things through the lens of, you know, that curious minds. That's, I look at everything and I want to ask questions and I want to understand what's happening. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been a interesting over the last few years. And for me, it really was an eye opener um, uh, at the start of the whole pandemic and what's happened since then. That's when everything really, seem to shift for me to start seeing things differently. 
I think uh, you, you were kind of getting into why is there no no media coverage or not much mainstream media coverage anymore um, about particularly Tamara Litch and Chris Barber. And there's a very good reason for that. It will look terrible for them and for the government. And that's the reason. There has been a CBC um, reporter there quite often. Um, Rebel News has been there pretty much the whole time. Yeah. But um, the trial certainly is not going well um, from the from the prosecution perspective. Um, there's a lot of lot of things that come out in there that are quite concerning. Wiped phones from Ottawa police, missing evidence. Um, and then, then you know, they spend weeks and weeks, and and put Chris and uh, and Tamara having to travel into town. Um, a trial that should have taken 16 days is months in. It's costing huge, huge amounts of money. I mean, that's all on purpose too, right? The process is the punishment in this case. Um, but the reason that they're not covering it is because if they do, people will see that they're lying and that they were lying before. Yeah. And they don't, you know, they don't want to give that to the to the to the public to use against them. And that is. That's why I ask, why is it not being covered? That's exactly, Chris. I mean, and, you know, I come at it from like, well, why is it not being covered? And why are they not asking all those questions? Because I agree. I think there's, it's very, very disturbing. The wiped phones, like, and to me as a journalist, like, how come that is not being attacked with like, a lot of attention should be given to this. Like, there's a lot of things, because I have been following that. And I just, it's very, very disturbing for, uh, with, with the lack of coverage and the lack of questioning of that whole, uh, trial process. And then there's the whole coots issue out in the, like, that's another one too, that there are people being held, um, without bail. And, uh, it's as a Canadian, that is what is very, very upsetting to me. And I, I, yeah, it, Gives me great. <laughs> it is quite ter it is quite terrifying the weaponization of, of these systems, and I, I've seen it. You know, there's some that are high profile cases like Chris and Tamara, but I've also seen it being done to all kinds of people I've I've met through the convoy and since in Ottawa, where these people are are arrested or charged on things that that should never have happened. You know, trumped up charges. Um, they're they're generally put through the ringer, and often the day before trial or or right to the end, uh, they'll bankrupt them, they'll stress them out terribly, and right at the last second, they'll withdraw the charges. Right. And then there's there's nothing to do about it, and um, th that weaponization and the targeting of people, you know, I would have never thought that was possible prior to all this. And um, they literally can and will do it to anyone yeah. that they don't agree with or that, that becomes a thorn in their side, and that is truly terrifying. And they put fear. You're right. That is one thing I have noticed. It's it strikes fear, and I think the whole freezing of bank accounts really was concerning because a lot of people, you know, would make donations or they happen to be part of the protest, and yet you know, they weren't uh, doing this for any, you know, overthrowing the government. They just were against the mandates. And I think that's a, like, to me, that's perfectly reasonable for people to disagree with something like that, especially as time went on and more information came out. Um, but yeah, I see it as it sends a message that to a lot of people to not protest, to not go speak up against the government because you could end up, you know, getting your bank account for it's hard to blame people too for for seeing that, right? They see they see violence inflicted on peaceful protesters. They see the law being weaponized, and and I mean, I've been doing this like I kind of am over that fear a little bit. If they could have got me, they would have gotten me already. And um, unfor unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, I don't really have anything to take anymore. Like my business from before this is gone. I kind of I'm starting new and finding a new path. Um, so I'm out there. I have the time, and and you know what is it? Can't take blood from a stone, really. Um, so. At least uh, for, in my perspective, I, I don't have that same fear, maybe with someone who had young kids, um, but all these various other things that, that to worry about. But it's no surprise that people are apprehensive 
about putting themselves out there. Chris, I'm interested in how you would describe your style of journalism. Would you would you say you're uh, I, I've described you as a new practicing new form journalism or are you a, a, a an act? Is it ju activism journalism? Um, yeah, I would how, say there's, what is it? there's some activism there for sure. I mean, that's kind of how I started. Um, yeah, it's really hard to describe. I don't know if these words necessarily like like there's not really descriptions for, for how this is. We're kind of figuring it out on, on the fly. Um, what's because the word you're that not, uh, from to be completely impartial or completely unbiased? No. You're you're coming at it from a, a very definite perspective, right? Yes, exactly. And and I mean I don't I don't pretend to hide my, my my opinions on things. I think when I started, part of the attraction for people was that it was me and I was showing things from my perspective, right? Like I'm right there, it's it's eyes on, but it's it's my experience. And and I mean I definitely have opinions about, about government, about all kinds of things. And uh, I don't hide those. I'm pretty pretty transparent with how I think and feel. And for the most part though, good or bad, I show what I see. And um, you know, even there's people that, that probably would have been or are ideologically opposed to me on a lot of issues that I've developed relationship with and follow and, and they follow back and, and we are able, some of us, to uh, to interact okay. So, um, I mean, as I'm getting more and more into this, I think I'm, I'm kind of trying to, to, you know, smooth out some of the rough edges and I'm trying to do things a little more uh, strategically and tactfully and, and with a bit more of a goal instead of just showing up in a place not knowing what the heck I'm doing. Um, I'm trying to put a little more forethought into it and, and do it a little more professionally, but um, it's still basically the same thing. It's my perspective of, uh, of what I see around me. I'm, I'm interested in what you have to say about that, Gail. Yeah, I think the problem is now that, I mean, journalism really is, it comes from a perspective. And I think, you know, now we look at someone like Chris as being activist journalist when really he's asking questions. I mean, my show Curious Minds is really about, you know, um, offering up an opportunity to talk to people that aren't in mainstream media or, um, you know, giving people more of a platform to, uh, if they, they've been attacked and Chris, I may have to have you on my show. Uh, yeah, uh, so to, and, and this is, you know, there is no such thing as true objectivity. I've, even when I was in journalism school, you try to be as objective as possible, but you can never be a hundred percent objective because we all come from a background we all come from like for me to go and talk about you know what it would be like to be in a wheelchair i don't have that i can try to understand but i don't understand completely right so this is where you want diversity of views diversity of people and i mean like when i say diversity i mean that in terms of viewpoints as well and now it seems that if you ask questions that are tough to the government oh well you must be a right winger you must be you know a conservative well maybe like someone like myself, I just think, you know, it's about challenging those in authority, whoever may be in authority, that should be the job of a journalist is to ask the tough questions. And, you know, when I was a journalist, like sometimes I would ask tough questions, even if I agreed with the person, I have to still ask those follow up questions. And that's what's missing right now. And, you know, someone like Chris, again, you know, just by asking tough questions, that seems as advocate journalism. Now, I think Rebel News is definitely falls under the, uh, you know, uh, banner of being more advocacy journalism. But, you know, and I don't agree with all of the style of David Menzies or their views on certain things, but I do credit them for covering things that we wouldn't hear about if we didn't have the Rebel News. So I celebrate all different views because that's what makes 
That's what we need for a true democracy and not just lip service and saying, yeah, you know, a lot of things we're seeing of late talking about what democracy is. Democracy is, is hearing different viewpoints and even from uh, even views that like someone like myself, I may not agree with everything on all political platforms, but I think they all have the right to, uh, to speak them and we need to challenge those views. All of you. Any, thought, any thoughts, Rob? Well, I, I agree with a lot of what has been said. And I think that, um, you know, for me, true journalism is it doesn't matter what, what journalist is, is in front of the camera. The five W's and H is what I want to know. And mm -hmm. if it's, you know, if, if I can, most media today is not like that. Most media today will ask some of the W questions, maybe the H, but they'll give you a lot of diatribe diatribe about what you should be thinking. And I and that's why I find mainstream media so offensive to uh, anyone who thinks because it's 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 really it's a giant PR machine as opposed to journalism. It's not giving us the facts, it's giving us what they want us to think. So I have I avoid that. Where I find the independent journalists, like when Chris does his live shows and you feel like you're there, you're you're watching events unfold. There's no bias there. He's just basically reporting. I mean when uh, Joe Biden came into town and he's filming the, the you know the motorcade going by, well, he's he's describing it as it's going as it's going on, and and we're seeing it. It's a small example, but at least it was the five the five W's and H as far as he could do for a live segment. He wasn't actually interviewing somebody. But I, like I said, the the mainstream media today is. I mean, I don't know anybody who watches it, even my own parents, when they, when they look at it, they're like, I can't even watch this anymore. And uh, they get the news through alternate means through, through, through uh, independent journalism now. So CBC um, had a, had a, sorry, go ahead, Chris. Sorry. Well, I was just thinking, so with the mainstream media, you know, it's, it's very obvious that they're going in with, they have a narrative and they're going out to tell the story that they've already decided they want to tell. If they can find something that suits it, they'll add a clip here. They'll take this piece there. If what they go and see, and even though they've recorded it and they were there, it doesn't fit their narrative, they just go home. You know, and, and I definitely have my, my own thoughts and my own beliefs and my opinions about all this. But when I go, I go to record the event. And good or bad, whatever is going to happen if I'm live, like that's happening live. People are like, oh, you edit it, you clip it. Well, I mean, sometimes I put out shorter clips also, but everything I do pretty much is live as well. So, I mean, it's, it's good or bad. I'm, I'm going down and, and I'm hoping maybe things will go a certain way. There's times where I would like to meet certain people and hopefully tell or highlight certain stories, but I really am at the at the whim of what happens in front of me. I'm not trying to be the story, although I am somewhat in it. I'm kind of a character, but it, it's more just showing me the story through my eyes. Mm -hmm. There was a panel like this, very similar to this, on CBC television discussing what happened to David Menzies. Um, it, you know, I, you know, it, to me, their what what I got from their panel discussion was it was his own damn fault because he they're they're just grifting. It would they were just he wanted that to happen so that they could they could they could raise some funds, millions of dollars. And uh, to me, when when I watched that, and I'll get you guys to comment on this in a broader sense, it it just illustrated for me that the mainstream legacy media, all the folks involved with it are having a really difficult time adjusting to the new journalistic reality out there. They, they, they're looking down their noses at independent journalism and losing sight of the fact that everything is changing. 
they're uh, they're 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 kind of snobs. To call them grifters, you know, Rebel News, and, and I get it. Every time that they have a big story, they put their donation link on there. But they're not getting billions or, or close or partial billions of dollars from the government. So who are the grifters, for one? $1.5 um, billion dollars the CBC yeah. gets. And they, yeah, and, they, and they said they couldn't afford to, to provide New Year's Eve coverage. It's like our government couldn't afford fireworks either or any type of ceremony or a light. or I mean, it's uh -huh. you know, in that co case, it's probably a choice. They just they just want everything to be gross and dystopian, and they don't want anyone to have any fun. But um, Man, you know, like, give me a grifter thing. Is, and, and we'll all put together uh, a whole team for New Year's. Yeah. <laughs> and they're being up front. Like, I, see, I always respect people who just put it out there. I mean, that's the one thing I have to respect about Rebel News is, like, you know exactly where they stand. You know what they're doing. They're not trying to hide anything. And, you know, it was interesting. I did watch part of that CBC panel. And, yeah, that's where that sort of, you know, uh, approach, the very elitist kind of approach came out, right? That it was kind of like tiss, tiss. Oh, David Menzies is, you know, he's inappropriate. He's, And I love this because any journalist and over all the years, Rick, I'm, I don't know if you ever had to do this, but we've all had to chase down people and believe me, being a reporter, being obnoxious was seen at one point as kind of like a badge of honor. You were out there, you were supposed to get in people's face and ask questions and track things down. That was, that's part of what being a reporter, you had to be tough, ask the tough questions. So, um, I mean, you know, whether you like or not dislike David Menzies should be totally irrelevant. That's, that's not the case. He, and I actually think in this case, he really wasn't, I mean, he didn't, do anything that I think was out of line. He he had the microphone. He asked her questions in, I think, a fairly reasonable fashion. And it's just, as I said, I still am shocked at how this story, but it's interesting how this story has blown up and mm. uh, it's got us all talking. It's also made it to a lot of the mainstream media. And I don't know, anybody that watches that video, I mean, you'd have to really be dug in and say, uh, that if you look at that and think that, the police officer was in the right there. I mean, whatever you may think of uh, Rebel News, that it's, it like just watch it a few times because it, it gets even funnier. <laughs> <laughs> What's your relationship like with uh, with other mainstream media, Chris? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you're running into them all the time. I'm sure. Yeah. Parliament Hill. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a pretty good relationship with most of the people I run into. Um, a lot of the mainstream media I, I don't see too often, right? So people covering politics are inside the building maybe, but um, I've gotten to know um, quite a few of the newspaper reporters here. I've gotten to know some CBC people. Um, gotten to know, they've got, uh, done a few interviews with CBC Radio Canada. Um, so, I mean, I, I see these people, Rebel News, uh, Lincoln in particular, um, I spent quite a bit of time with between the trial and, and covering different events. So. Um, I mean, I gen generally, like, people th seem to think I'm a bit of a, a, a disturber, you know, or I'm, I'm out there causing trouble. For the most part, I get along with, with almost everyone I meet. I mean, it may be not as obvious with the video I'm putting out all the time, but uh, when, when the cameras aren't off and in a normal situation, you know, these are people that just like anybody else, and I try to talk to them if I can. Man, you know, I just, I can't see RCMP ever doing that. I, I, I can't even think of a time when I've ever, when I ever saw a, a mainstream media reporter arrested by the cops. Has that ever happened to any of you? Have you ever seen that? Any of you? I don't think so. Well, that's all on camera. I mean, yeah. It was, I, well, and did it you see the, uh, sorry, the, the video that Andrew Lawton put out, it was a speech with uh, 
with Christian Freeland talking about about how important independent press is, how it must be protected and it must be, you know, must be ensure the safety of, of independent media. Meanwhile, you have it on the bottom. You have Menzies literally getting thrown into a bus stop for asking the question. You know, it's it almost makes me wonder, like, like whose side is is that guy a tyrant doing the bidding of Trudeau, or is he actually secretly trying to take everyone down? Like. Because if you want to wake a bunch of people up and, and show and really show what the issues are, man, that's how you do it. Like that, that video is everywhere. It's international. It's on mainstream media. And I mean, there are a few people trying to justify it or, or blame Menzies, but I mean, that, that doesn't really go over very well at all. And that's actually well, that's kind of scary. The fact that people, the, that people will justify it because they don't agree with uh, perhaps his political uh, leaning. So he deserves it. That's, uh, I mean, it's more telling of the people making those statements than, uh, than of Menzies. And last time I, I last count, 15 million views on that video. Okay, what about this theory? The police officer and Rebel News are in this together and they did this because they wanted us to block. No, I'm kidding. But, you know, it, it is. I could think of a scenario like that, but but this officer, I mean, he has a history, I think, so it wouldn't surprise me. Someone said this. You couldn't script this better for a Rebel News story for a fundraiser. Like, it really was. Uh, but, you know, it's like, you know, I work in PR and so these people say, oh, we need, we want something to go viral. And I'm like, well, it's only when this, when it's happened so naturally like this, that it just will blow up. Because you, you know what they say, truth is stranger than fiction. Like you couldn't have planned this better than, and that's why I think more and more, I, I'm thinking it was just a, uh, maybe the idea was that they were going to just, you know, pull them aside and then the whole arrest thing and the handcuffs. I mean, the handcuffs was way, way. Well, I've seen, uh, I've seen similar situations to this play out. And, and I mean, maybe this is, is a, a bit of a factor of this has been going on to some degree for a while, but there were far less cameras and far less people and ability to share what's happened. But I, I've seen similar situations, particularly with my work with Save Canada. I mean, I've seen those young men, you know, being attacked, hit, physically assaulted, and, and being dragged out of crowds, thrown on police cars, arrested. Um, I mean, I've seen veterans arrested for being attacked by Antifa. So these kinds of things really, like, when you see them in real time, you, you say, I could not make this up if I tried. And you look back afterwards and you kind of wonder what's going on. I, I'm just a bit curious if this has been going on, maybe to some degree. And now we're just seeing it, you know, the masses are seeing it because of our ability to share. Yeah, um... That, that's a larger question. Yeah. Was this kind of stuff going on in the past and we just didn't know about it because people didn't have phones? That wasn't my personal experience. Was I just missing it? Or have things actually changed? And maybe, Rob, you have a, a better perspective on that. Well, I'll give you a perspective we haven't talked about yet. I'm a business owner and I advertise. And how does... Um, mainstream media make their make their months end through advertising. That's how the model works. And how do they make their advertising dollar? Why do companies want to advertise? Because there's eyes watching their product. There's eyes watching their broadcasts. And when they start losing credibility and people aren't watching anymore, they're in a death spiral now. Because I, as a, as a business owner, I'm not going to be advertising on mainstream media because I know it's going to be a waste of money. People aren't going to be seeing it. I know if I want to advertise, I'm going to advertise on Rebel News. I'm going to advertise on on uh, on on Facebook, on Google. That's where my advertising dollar is going. This 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 mainstream media model that we have is literally in a death spiral. And if it wasn't for taxpayer dollars propping them up so the government could push its own narrative, 
I don't think the majority of them would be around anymore. And and, and I, I really I really think that they've signed a deal with the devil. They've signed their own death warrants because when it comes to these large media outlets, they have infrastructure. They have a lot of salaries to pay. They've got equipment. They've got all these expenses that the smaller media outlets don't have. They're not going to be able to compete on the scale um, because there is access to independent media now. And because independent media is so much more credible than the mainstream media, I don't think they're going to be lasting much longer, to be honest with you. Even with all that government money. Well, I mean, think about it. They're getting government money now. But there are numerous politicians that are saying this has got to stop. And how many people do you see? Uh, what do they call it? Uh, kill the CBC or, or, stop, or stop funding the CBC. There's a huge movement out there. I mean, the, there's a lot of people that are very upset with the CBC and, and, and the narratives that they're pushing, which has nothing to do with reality. Yeah. Here's an interesting thing that Chris said, and and I, I, you know, if we look at what happened even during the convoy, this is not new. What's happened is that, I mean, a lot of people were arrested and removed and then dropped off outside the city, dropped off. So, you know, this maybe has brought to light something that is, um, it just happened to be, again, a reporter. And, but regular people that have been out and this is probably not new and Chris you've probably seen this and I think that's a really good point that you know we're we're having this big discussion because it happened on camera with Rebel News and the other thing is remember they they have run with this it didn't they didn't just scurry away and let it go right they are they've used their platform so to me this is the bigger story of uh that needs to be covered and not and it's not being covered and further what Rob said yeah that I mean we always learned yeah that the five W's and the H, but it's why we should always be asking why of everything that happens. Why is that happening? Why do we have a housing issue? Why do we have inflation? Why? Like no one asks why anymore. That's, that's what's lost in our media coverage is, um, you know, we have lots of seeing what's happened, but there's a lot less um, analysis and asking questions of why. And we let politicians off the hook. A lot of times I'm talking in terms of media asking questions, you know, we'll ask these, softball questions and there's no follow-up like i listen sometimes to news conferences and i just am shocked at how they just let them go on to the next question they just answer these questions with uh, such bland answers and i just you know and that's where we did see you know with when pierre polyev started pushing back with the reporter and everybody thought that was so horrible but i thought well I'm sorry, as a reporter, uh, if you're going to take on something, you better come equipped and don't just ask these general questions. And, and, you know, it's I remember one time early on as a reporter hearing about someone asked Margaret Atwood and I think she hung up like she she didn't suffer fools either. Right. And whatever. So, yeah, if you're going to if you're going to be a journalist, you're going to ask questions, you better come prepared to uh have them get pushed back at you. And all of a sudden people thought this was terrible that Pierre Polyev did that. But I, as a reporter, I'm like, no, oh, sorry, going to play with the big guns. You better be prepared to accept the uh, pushback. Are you talking yeah. about the Apple incident? Okay. Uh, the Apple incident and also the, um, yeah, that was, that was the big one. There was another one. I think he asked, he asked follow up, but the Apple incident. And again, that has blown up, but and that was not a junior reporter asking those questions. Like that was a someone with experience and, you know, same thing. Some of the media came to the reporters, 
defense. And I'm like, sorry, no, you don't get a pass for that when you're, um, you know, when I was a reporter, if I was going to uh, take someone on, and I do have a story one time I, I took on, um, I think at the time, Rick, you'll appreciate this, Remo Mancini. <laughs> and I was asking quite, I pushed him on it, pushed him on it. And uh, finally I said, well, if you're not going to answer my question, we might as well end the interview. And he hung up and then he called my boss and I got called over. And at that time though, it was kind of, I got a congratulation. Many <laughs> times later, many months later, I bumped into him and I had to go up to him and, you know, introduce myself. And he goes, Ooh, and he goes, Oh, well, you're not the piranha I thought you were. And I'm like, well, stay tuned. <laughs> Hey well, man, if you're going to be a politician, you have to expect that. Yeah, from time to time. I think the uh, the mainstream media reporters or journalists are, are so comfortable that just shows that that they know that they're going to get these softball answers. They're coming in often with with prepared questions. You know, if you do ask anything, these politicians they go off on a complete rant about whatever they want. Yeah, they don't even address like you could you could just say nothing or whatever. It's really about their speech is pre predetermined. But for somebody to challenge them, I, I don't think they're used to that at all. Uh, most of our, our media is so, so broad. Like it's, no, there's no nuance in anything, right? You want to know about a why, but we never get close to that. It's, these are very complex issues we're dealing with in society. And they try to break them down into such simple, comp, you know, simplistic um, approaches that it, where do you even go from that? Well, do you think the reporters today are maybe afraid to ask questions that are mm -hmm. a little difficult? Well, if their paychecks are in jeopardy or their jobs, then uh, I, I, mm -hmm. I suppose they would be. Yeah. And certainly during the pandemic, uh, I think it was almost forbidden to ask certain questions. It still is to some degree. We're, it's getting better, I guess, but but it definitely still is to some degree. There's still subjects that are taboo right now. I think I, uh, I, think I got a strike here, uh, a warning today on Facebook for sharing something from, and it came from Global News. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I will say if I was still working in mainstream media, I, I would have, I would have been gone. I, I know I wouldn't have survived uh, working on it, working in it because um, yeah, there was not room to ask tough questions. And I will say this: sometimes I felt a little bit bad, even during the conference, like the reporters that were coming out, you know, they're, they're doing a job that I would, I do not envy. Right. Um, and it, it's much like police too. I, I did feel at times that was a tough, tough um, road for many um, because it's, yeah, I, that's a very complex discussion because uh, unless they were going to quit, they probably had to come out and, and approach a story in a certain way. And I think police also had a certain, certain roles they had to play. That's interesting. Maybe, maybe that would Rob could touch on that after too, but you you know, if you want people to stand on principle, you want people to do it in media or in policing. But if everybody just resigned right away because they didn't agree with what was going on, who would we have left in those in those positions? Right. Like if all the good leadership quit out of principle, then they have no influence left. They're gone. And then you're left with either people with, uh, you know, rookies or whatever, people with far less experience or yes, man. So I, it, it is a very complex thing. It's hard to know what the best thing to do. Do you do you stay on and try to to fight this, and I mean, you'd have to be willing to and want to, right? In media, perhaps these people don't have that uh, that same perspective. But just curious, what uh, what you think about that, Rob? Well, I think uh, you know from what I've seen, I I I, I know that when the whole COVID shots uh, issue came up, I know a lot of officers who were near retirement that said, 
I'm not going to be doing this. I'm not doing it and I'm going to quit. And some other officers uh, bucked the system. They were put on leave. They were not paid. I just sat, I sat beside one particular officer at the Helen Groot trial who was just telling me about uh, their experience with this and how they were not working for eight months. And now they're, they're, they've retired, their house is paid off, and now they have a job at National Security with RCMP working as a contractor doing something completely different while they're, while they're taking in their pension. So where I'm going with this is that there are a lot of people that, you know, they, a lot of officers that they want their pool, they want their lifestyle, they don't want to give it up. And unfortunately, they're not standing on principle. And that's a lot of them. Not, not everyone. You have the Helen Grew uh, people who, who are standing up for principle. And, and look what's happening to them. They're being dragged through the media. But the, they're being dragged through the media in a negative way until public opinion started to switch and started to, uh, was, was in favor of Helen Grew's story. And what did the OPS do? They stopped publicizing the actual trial because they, they, they started to become afraid of what the public is thinking because they were not siding with the police. Well, Donald Best, uh, independent journalist, is reporting on the Helen Grew trial. He's getting a lot of interest. The story is going around the world. He even had Frank Serpico commenting on what's happening with Helen Grew. So I think to a large degree, I don't know if you're familiar with the Streisand effect, but we're starting to see the Streisand effect taking place with the mainstream media and them trying to, to quash stories or trying to silence stories. And what the Streisand effect is, is when you try to silence a story, all of a sudden that story generates that much more interest and becomes even more powerful of a story. And that's exactly what's happening with uh, a lot of these stories with the truckers, with Helen Grew, etc. So, like I said, I, I to answer your question, I think there are a lot of um, not as principled people as we would expect in the police service, but there still are a heck of a lot of principled officers still there. And although in my uh, in my experience, they make somewhat of a minority, not that the average officer is not a good person, but I think that, you know, they've got their job. They're afraid of losing their job. And I I, I would not be one of those officers. I would, I'd be kicking up a storm. I'd be kicking up dust that you wouldn't believe. So, you know, I wish there was more of officers like that, but I think that, that would be a, a representation of what the climate is in that institution. And just to explain to people who maybe aren't familiar with what the Helen Grew case is about, that's a, an Ottawa police service officer with, I think, about 20 years experience, worked a lot with um, uh, domestic issues, if I remember, it, 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 no, or, or child, child welfare things. Child abuse section. Yeah, so okay. her, her, the unique thing about her case is that she was not only supposed to investigate a spike in child deaths after the jab that she noticed. By the way, I refuse to call it a vaccine because it's not. Uh, all the data shows that it's not. Um, so in, in, her, in her duties, she noticed after the jab was being administered to infants, a huge spike in infant deaths uh, was noticed. So she, with this data, she tried interviewing doctors and, and some, some medical professionals, and she looked at some files. And as a result, her supervisors tried to shut down her investigation. Now, that's extremely odd. Where's this direction coming from? to shut down this investigation that is showing that there is an increase in child deaths. We know from other doctors, the ones that are not being censored, that there is a huge uptake in, de uptick in deaths. And I'm gonna, if, if I approach this, I don't know if you find this interesting or not, but it's certainly food for thought. 
if I look at the um, the story of the the, uh, the wisdom of Solomon in the Bible, there's a really good story here, and I'm going to touch on it quickly. Do I have the time to do this? Can I talk about this? Yeah, story? yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it's so if you, at, if you look at the wisdom of Solomon story, is anybody here unfamiliar with that story? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. No, you'll have to probably explain that one. I'm not. Uh... <laughs> what happens is uh, King Solomon is, is facing a situation where there's two prostitutes that have, have were living together. They were young prostitutes. They both ended up having children around the same time. And mm -hmm. one of the prostitutes in the middle of the night woke up to find her child dead. And what she did was she took the, the baby of the other prostitute, put it under her arm and, and exchanged the baby. So when the other prostitute woke up, she would believe that it was her uh, child that was dead. But the, the prostitute who had the child that was alive said, this is not my child. You've switched the babies. Well, of course, King Solomon had no idea what happened between these two women. And they both went to him and said, she's got my daughter. No, she's got my daughter. I'm the mother. I'm the mother. So the King Solomon said, I'm going to come up with a way I'm going to solve this problem. We're going to cut the baby in half. And between the two of you, you're going to determine who's going to have the top and who's going to have the bottom. And one of the prostitutes said, fine, that's if that's how it's going to be, that's how it's going to be. And the other prostitute says, no, don't hurt my child. Even if I can't have my child, I'll give it to her. Just don't hurt my baby. And by virtue of that, King Solomon knew who was the real mother and who was the imposter. Well, the same thing is happening now with our medical profession. If you look at those who are towing the, the public line and those who are getting the media coverage, those are the ones that are in favor of the jab. They are pushing it and safe, it's effective, etc. It's the doctors that have nothing to gain by telling the truth and the other side of the story that are the ones suffering. So anyone who has a mindset, an independent mindset, and looks at you know the story of King Solomon and looks and evaluates this information today, who are you going to believe? The people, that the doctors that have absolutely nothing to gain by telling the truth or the ones that are able to keep their licenses and repeat the government narrative? And I think that sort of critical thinking really needs to take place in society today People need to start activating their faculties of critical thinking and seeing there's something awry, there's something not going right. Well, if you look at all, is this boring, by the way? No, no on the contrary. I love it. So, so if you look at all of the people that are pushing the jabs right now, I mean, you can go on TED Talk from 2010 and you can see Bill Gates. He says right to the TED Talk, we need to reduce the population. He says that in the TED Talk. And who's behind all of these jobs? Who's behind all the administration of, of these, uh, these COVID jobs? And if you read the book by RFK Jr., he talks about the, 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 the Fauci Gates, um, how should I say this, the, the syndicate, so to speak, and how many lives they've destroyed in third world countries and in Africa and Asia with these, with these so-called vaccines. I mean, there's such a dirty just such a dirty corporate story to be told here and of course who's in on it our prime minister this is why a prime minister who's making 200 and whatever thousand dollars a year is it has a bank account in excess of tens of millions to hundreds of millions of dollars suddenly how do you think this is happening well i think i think like i said it, it the corruption that we're seeing in our institutions right now is so great and people are starting to get squeezed people are starting to get upset why do you think he's trying to take everybody's guns why do you think he's building a parliament into a fortress? Our institutions that we should be able to go into and interact with our MPs, why are they becoming fortresses? Well, from the inside, from what I'm hearing, he's terrified. He's terrified that someone's going to make a move. This is why he's 
he's uh, building a parliament in the security the way it is. So that's my comment on that question. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, let's take, let's take a quick break. And uh, when we come back on the other side, I want to just get you to elaborate on, on what you just said there about safety, Rob, with regard to safety surrounding the prime minister and these other politicians. We'll be right back after this. Fighting the Great Reset by leading the Great Great Resistance. Maverick News. The antivirus programs for your mind. Feel the vibrations. Our quest continues. The truth is out there. We are Mavericks. back on planet earth chris when i watch your videos i see these politicians walking down the street sometimes with rcmp around them sometimes not christian freeland walked up that sidewalk there were rcmp officers there at the door but nobody around her i've covered the queen i've covered presidents i've covered canadian politicians prime ministers, premiers, the security in Canada around our politicians has always been much less robust. You can't get near the president. You can't get near the queen. But I've walked right up to prime ministers. In the current political environment where I'm seeing sometimes the prime minister 
with RCMP around him quite often, but still walking right out into crowds of people where sometimes it's a mix of people supporting him, happy to see him want selfies, but also people so enraged that they're red in the face and veins popping out of their foreheads. I'm, I'm worried about his safety, even Christian Freeland's safety. I don't want anything bad to happen to, to them or anybody. Uh, I just want Rob, especially you with your, your background in policing. Do you think the political or the, yeah, the political environment, the, the, the environment in general has changed in a way that would warrant uh, better security around these politicians. Uh, I, I'm interested in your thoughts because you're right there dealing with them, Chris, every day, seeing what's going on on the ground. And Rob, you've got that professional background. I'm watching this on screens. Yeah, maybe I can I can touch on on what I like. I always found it actually quite shocking that that I could get that close. Like, I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, I was literally within feet of the prime minister, and actually, I was up against the building inside his protection. So his detail was on the outside; he was next, and then I was inside against the building. So, I mean, I was literally within feet of him. Um, I'd had a long conversation with the RCMP that night while I waited for them, and uh, they know me, and they know I'm not a threat. But I wouldn't say that there would be no threats or no concern of threat for, for these leaders. Um, it's a shocking difference from, uh, like Rob mentioned when I was uh, covering Biden coming, he was never in view of the public once. He exited the building. They had a, a tent that his, his motorcade would pull into, his, his armored limousine or whatever it was. He was never visible. So he got in there, next building he went to, same thing, another tent outside. Um, when he got to the house, they brought him around the back. So very, very different. Um, MPs just, uh, I mean, regular MPs just walk around alone, sometimes with uh, perhaps with with an aide when you get to some of the uh, the more, uh, you know, the people in the caucus or, or the deputy prime minister, then, then you'll sometimes get a few RCMP. And with Trudeau, he always has a detail. But even that is small. It's three SUVs and, uh, and a tactical team generally, perhaps an ambulance sometimes. Yeah. Rob, what, what do you think? Well, I mean, look at uh, the last prime minister before Trudeau was Harper. And at that time, you could go onto Parliament Hill, you could go into the building, you could have a tour, you could use the washrooms. This is our institution. This is the public's institution. It's not his institution. What has he done with it? Ever since he became prime minister, he's put up massive barriers, massive walls. Vehicles can no longer get on, on uh, Parliament Hill. Um, you Even walking onto Parliament Hill, you can't even, I mean, wheelchairs can't get up there unless you put them over those barriers. Uh, from Wellington Street, who is he protecting here? Like, why is he doing this? We don't have, we're not a gun culture in Canada. There is no threats. Gun, uh, handguns are illegal to be carrying unless you're carrying a permit. So it's the police carrying them. So what's with all this security? Like, what's going on here? Well, from well, I, cer I certainly see what you're saying with regard to, you know, fortifying Parliament Hill. But him himself, like, to me, it, it's, it's, I'm seeing him walk out into crowds of people where I would say there could potentially be a threat to his safety. And it's almost to me like what I've seen in the past year, almost like he wants something to happen uh, because yeah. he could use it. I mean, I don't know, or, or it just seems careless to me. It's just, it seems inappropriate. I've never seen, I've walked up to prime ministers in the past, but never in my life have I seen a prime minister more hated 
by the public than this guy. And sometimes they're still letting him walk out into crowds of people. And I think that's very unwise. Uh, it seems to be his choice. Um, I, and I, I, it's hard to know how, how much uh, digging or whatnot, but I think if the RCMP really thought there were threats, they would adjust that tax. So um, there was, there is a time where they've changed their security a little bit. So the prime minister for a while was getting, normally he walks out the door of his office. The, the motorcades in front. Um, there was a, a time a while back where uh, where people were calling for a, a day of terror or something along those lines. It wasn't too long right. after the, uh, the the conflict there in the Middle East kind of popped off, mm-hmm. and uh, and they adjusted their their security for that. Like like it had nothing to do with that. Regular protests were still going on, but for a good few weeks, he started. They changed they changed the way they do things. So they started going behind the gates, entering vehicles behind the gates where he wasn't really visible, taking him away to to other areas, unloading behind the House of Commons. So in that case, there seems to have been a higher threat level or they determined there was. What makes me think that they don't consider anyone here a threat. But look, at, if they did, look they would at what you've, you've covered some of these, they've called them swarmings, which I think some of it is drama where you've got people out there protesting who maybe are a little over the top emotionally and, 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 acting a little bit but i think that there's also some real genuine emotion and anger there um and you've i think you know live streamed some of this stuff i've seen people right up in his face calling him a pedophile screaming at him get the f out of here um and within like they could they could touch him if they wanted to yeah you you, you're really right about that emotion i mean i i was the same way when i first like the first time i put eyes on him I was overcome with like unbelievable amounts of emotion. And basically like think of everything that's happened all the trauma, all the hurts, all the stuff, like everything comes out and you, you almost like, like you're shaking. You can't think you can't talk. And it was only through exposure therapy really that I'm calm now around that. I mean, I, I got that out of me, but in my experience, when people first see them, they absolutely lose it. Absolutely lose it. And it's, it's not a, uh, it's not for show. Like it's real. That's that's emotion that's that's trapped in those people, and when they see, you know, somebody who's who's a large part of the cause of it, that emotion comes out. But at the same time, I've never seen any of those people who, yes, they're emotional, yes, they're screaming, but they didn't give any indication of being dangerous or violent. So emotions coming out, but I never got the same idea from from any of these crowds. It was never really a situation where where at least for me that it looked like anything was very dangerous. Now that's crowds that I know and certain types of people, like they're they're often just everyday people. Um, that wouldn't be the same necessarily of, of all crowds and all people with a problem with the PF. Any other thoughts, Rob? Well, I, I think, excuse me, I think that, uh, I think the general public is getting very upset with this person, with Trudeau. I think there's a lot of anger. And I think to a degree, he's becoming paranoid because why would he be boxing himself up the way he does? The RCMP detail that we see, there are people that are in plain clothes, they're wearing their ties, you can tell with their earpieces who they are. There's another contingent there that are in the crowd that are RCMP officers that look like regular people. There are also a set of eyes that we don't necessarily see, but they're in there as well. His security is much more complicated, much more beefed up than it looks to us because we don't know who the people are in the crowd who are in that detail. Um, he's obviously paranoid because he is building up parliament and, 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 uh, uh, reinforcing it security wise, barrier wise, etc. Um, and even, even the stuff that he pushes, I mean, the, the psychological operations that he is responsible for, 
uh, environment and climate change Canada. I mean, climate change is such a nonsense term, means absolutely nothing, but it's just an excuse to raise taxes. But that's what he calls it. Every time I see a weather report from environment and climate change Canada, I just shake my head and laugh. I go, I just think to myself, how much of a fool this person is. And I think that any anybody who doesn't raise these questions is even a bigger fool because there is no such thing as climate change the way they're describing it. Climate has changed since the earth was uh, since the earth was made. It's nothing that man is causing or not causing. Climate has changed by um, sun flares, sunspots, etc. That's what's changing our climate. These nonsense um, programs that he's pushing forward. He can't take homeless off the street, but he's going to somehow affect climate on Earth. You got to give me a give me a break. Well, at least we have tampons in men's washrooms. Well, that's exactly, oh, yeah. that's exactly it. And you know, you know, on a um, on a security point of view, I saw something really disturbing the other day on on a podcast in the U.S. We've had a lot of we've had a, a few years now of defund the police. This this uh, public relations movement, defund the police. I know in Ottawa, a lot of the police officers are just—they are just um, overworked. They're—they're they're understaffed. They're overworked. I know that from the people I'm talking to. But where this becomes really interesting is in Los Angeles. Uh, I think it was a couple months ago. Was the first class of recruits that they graduated from their their equivalent of our police college that are non-citizens. These are citizens. Mm -hmm. These are people that could not carry guns in the United States and are only able to carry guns by virtue of their employment with the LAPD. So on one hand, we're talking about defunding the police, we're squeezing out uh, residents from our policing services, yet immigrants are filling the roles, non-citizens are filling the roles. I shouldn't say immigrants, I should say non-citizens are filling the roles of, of policing. Is that where we're going? Because what I've noticed is anything that happens in the US under the Biden administration is mirror imaged here in Canada. There's, there's so much, the psyops are the same, the, the garbage that they're putting on their on our populations is the same. And I just, I look at that as a model and is that, I ask myself, is that what's, what the ultimate goal is? Is to have people who are non-citizens carrying guns, being able to use force against us, citizens of Canada? That's and very going, back to, going back to Rick, what you said about Trudeau and Canada is gonna be the first post-national state. Try to find that clip. I've tried to find that clip. I can't find it anywhere on the internet. I know he said it because I, I watched him say it live. Yeah. But I can't find it anywhere. I don't know. I, I challenged somebody to find that clip and send it to me because I would really like to use that in a, in a podcast that I would do addressing this issue. I think what's happening under this Trudeau government is scary. He knows what his plans are. And I think that's exactly why he's barricading himself in. He may have these very small greeting or small uh, scrums where he where people have access to him, but he's got his security thugs there ready to protect him. But I don't see him in large crowds. And I know that underneath Parliament, they're building a double, a double, a two lane highway underneath Parliament to move around. Why is he doing that? Why is that necessary for, if Canada is so safe? Why is he taking away guns? How many police chiefs have said you can take away guns from the average peaceful citizen? That's not going to impact anything on crime. Crime is with the thugs that shouldn't be carrying guns or prohibited from carrying guns. Those are the people you should be targeting. But those are the people they're letting out. The people that they're targeting are the Tamara Leeches. Tamara Leech, who's in, who's in uh, jail for mischief for how long? And how long is her trial going on? So 
like I said, I think this, I think Trudeau's an extremely weak man. I think he's lacking moral character. He's not exactly a Rhodes Scholar. If He's actually quite dull. And I think that uh, he's compensating with all of these things that he's putting in place because he is so weak. And just like Jordan Peterson, Jordan Peterson said, it's not the strong it's not the strong men you have to fear. It's the weak men, and that's Trudeau. The thing is, I don't fear him. So I hope nothing happens to him. I don't want anything to happen to him. I hope that he exits office peacefully, and I hope he faces trial when he's out of office. I think that's what, that's what I would like to see personally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a little accountability from from anyone would go a long way. I, I think without any, you know, it's been so long since we've seen accountability from any of our leaders. Um, it's very hard to to move past these things if there's no no accountability. Um, it's interesting too, like, like what you say about the uh, in LA. I think I've also read recently that that the Canadian forces are looking at changing their um, their standards for who who can serve and who they're going to start recruiting, and and particularly in the police force when you have people that are coming in that have no connection to, to the city, to the people, or even perhaps to the country, that's very concerning for me. It, it reminds me a bit about, about how they brought in all these various police forces from outside of Ottawa. It wasn't Ottawa police that were beating us up. It was Peel police. It was uh, Quebec police. It was, there was various police force, but it didn't seem to me like it was the Ottawa police who were on the front lines then, right? They brought people in, so they didn't have the connection. And, and what they're doing with, with bringing in non-citizens is that just to it to an even uh, more extreme level? So that's quite concerning. Um, I don't know if you are aware either that um, at Parliament, at the House of Commons, um, it's been going on for a while now, but they started restricting access to certain people just because of their associations. So without any reason, um, without any incidents happening, um, Lynn Brooks was uh, actually, and her brother, um, Bill Brooks, is a, a veteran that's been uh, protesting up around there. He was, had a, a meeting with committee, was going in to see the minister, and they wouldn't let Lynn, who's his sister, wouldn't let her into the Hill because of her associations with freedom-related people. And that happened to, uh, man, it happened to quite a few people. I can think of maybe a dozen even that, that were denied access to the House of Commons, to the gallery, when it's open to the public. So not only are they, are they increasing security, fencing things off, but they're now actually restricting access to citizens with, without reason or without recourse either, really. It, it is scary, and like I said, it's it's very it's very similar to uh, the the communist governments. I mean, they want to rule without law. They want to rule um, on a whim, and they want to rule the way they want to rule, just to just to be powerful. In a democracy, that doesn't work. I mean, we are we are already experiencing a decline in our quality of life based on prices that we're seeing in stores, based on the the corruption of our institutions, the corruption of our healthcare system, uh, both the federal and the provincial levels, like it's, it's, it, the armed forces are being depleted. They can't recruit the stupid psycho psychological operation programs. So, you know, the transgenderism on every cruise or on every government institution. I mean, you don't have to, if a, if a behavior is normal, you don't need to normalize it. And it, it is, it is, it is essentially, if you've, if you've watched Yuri Bezmenov's interview from 1984, it is exactly the psychological demoralization of a population. That's the program they're putting forward. They're putting, they, like, I even believe that the whole flat earth movement is a psyop. And I think people have become so suspicious with government that they're actually believing this crap, but you can look outside yourself. And I mean, with an open aperture lens at nighttime, you can take a picture of the stars and within five minutes, you look at the picture and you can see the stars are moving. Well, why is that? Because the earth is spinning. So, you know, these things are really easy to see, but the, 
the amount of emotion that people put in to these beliefs, it's a measuring stick to show those who are deploying these psychological operations how much effect they're actually having. That's what that's what is the purpose of these uh, the flat earth movement. That's that's a psychological operation. It's all contained with Yuri Bezmenov's interview. Exactly what they're doing. And it is the psychological demoralization of the public to the point where if you demoralize a society to the point where they can no longer differentiate between fact and fiction, that public becomes ineffective when it comes to resistance. And that's exactly well, what they're doing. And that's, yeah, why that's just, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's the other side or the negative side of social media that allows whoever is running these psyops to um, to reach out and get into people's minds in, in unprecedented ways and in, in incredibly effective ways. So it's great because you have citizen journalists or independent journalists, people with phones holding politicians accountable. So there's that when we're not being censored, but on the other side, it's also being used as a tool. And I think you're quite right, Rob, for psyops and um, psychological manipulation of people and maybe even manipulation of our elections. Do you guys have thoughts on that? There's yeah, no, I, I, doubt. no doubt. I, There's no doubt. Chris, you want to go ahead? Go ahead. Yeah, I just think for sure, man. I, I know, like, I mean, the amount of information and the amount of these issues that are constantly being thrown in our face, that's not by accident, right? We are overwhelmed with information. And if we're spending all our time worrying about, yeah, the earth is an oblate spheroid, for the record. But if we're worrying all, spending all our time arguing about that, we're not even getting close to the issues that matter either. And that's a problem as well. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely, I, there's no doubt. I mean, it's even come out, even the mainstream media has carried the stories that China is interfering uh, financially with our elections. And they are buying social media time, the social media spots, advertising spots. And it becomes very unfair because when there's actual limits on how much a campaign can spend, yet third-party advertising is coming in to augment a campaign to get great, to give greater exposure to a desired candidate. Absolutely. That's uh, that's interference in elections because it's going outside the rules. And I think the biggest this is this is another thing. This wouldn't work. This wouldn't work if the average citizen was more involved in politics and actually on a much more grassroots level, paid attention to who the people are running in their ridings. So many people I know, which is really unfortunate, you know, more and more people are taking uh, a part in politics. But so many people I know either don't vote or they vote on the name that they most kind of like on the ballot because they have absolutely no idea who these people are. And democracy fails when the public fails to take part in it. And that's what we're seeing right now. When, with election turnout so low, people can't be bothered. The, you know, the apathy, oh, it's not gonna, I'm not gonna make a difference. <laughs> well, a small band of truckers in comparison to the size of the population of Canada sure as heck made a difference. And so can anyone else if they start taking part in our in our civic institutions it, it takes far less than people would think and and one of the places or it seems to, that the places that people are the least involved so yes there, we have already bad numbers at, at the national level but when you get all the way down to to municipal for mayors for municipal uh, councillors and and school boards you have even less interaction there but those are the like particularly school boards like they're doing a lot of things what people wouldn't even realize right if people were paying a little more attention going to these meetings they can have a real effect and they can have an effect very, very quickly at those lower levels. And, and same, with, uh, same with the council levels, like uh, city, city council levels. 
uh, you can make a real difference and you can you can make a difference fairly quickly on those levels. And it doesn't take uh, a much smaller group than you would think to start getting involved. And uh, they can start having a real, real, real effect. Localism well, uh, defeats okay. globalism. I'm just going to caution, Chris, that, that statement. I think, I think you're right. I think the municipal governments are closest to the public. But the municipal governments are pretty much run by the province. And um, I, I, the, the, the law escapes me right now. But ultimately, it's the province that determines the powers of the municipalities. So the the strong mayor powers, too. Yeah. Exactly. But nonetheless, it still stems from the province. So the two real institutions that we must get good people in are the federal system and the provincial system. And I think everything flows, <coughs> excuse me, excuse me, everything flows down, down, uh, downwind from that or down or downhill from there. So I think there really should be a lot more participation on the provincial and federal levels from the general public on who's elected without a doubt. Yeah. And I mean, I, it's, how do we get there? I wonder, like, like I, I wasn't really a political guy on, on, you know, but when these things started affecting me, I mean, I owned a business in Ontario under Kathleen Wynne for quite a long time. And every year, more and more issues were affecting, you know, my life and my family and, and the bottom line of business. Um, so I kind of started caring about this stuff that way and naturally because it was affecting me. Maybe for a long time, people weren't so affected, but with, with how quickly our systems are, are being corrupted, with how inflation's out of control, there's just so many issues. Um, I think... Like the, unfortunately, the suffering that's going to start affecting so many more people will bring people into politics. They're going to have no other choice but to have to care. When it affects you, when it affects your family, is a lot different than some abstract idea that you think has nothing to do with you. And then you have also the issue of you know controlled opposition. Um, you have the issue. I'm just going to research it right now. Um, Ontario political parties. Last I checked, Derek Sloan was still taking donations, talking about being the leader of the Ontario party. It's not even a registered Ontario party. I don't know if people, I don't know if you're aware of that. I, mean, I, I don't think, yeah. I don't think it is right now. No, it wasn't. Uh, I so, wasn't actually. So there you go. So there's a perfect example of, you know, here you hear the, the guy ran for new blue. So you hear the question, well, why can't the Ontario party and the new blue party get together and you'd be much more effective. And people don't understand that the new blue is a legitimate party that stands for what most people would want freedom of our children in schools, not to be sexually groomed. We're the only party that stands for that. Whereas the Ontario party, remember Rick Nichols jumped onto the Ontario party. He was never elected as an Ontario party guy. He voted for Sogi uh, on behalf of the Ontario party. And then when the Ontario party was a party during the election, they were legitimate then, but then they were deregistered right after the election. And since then they have not been a political party, yet Derek Stone's going around and he's soliciting donations and he's talking about the Ontario party as if it's a legitimate party. It's not. It's not even a registered party in Ontario. So what I, where I'm going with this is the, the politics has become so dirty that even the legitimate parties that are trying to go up against the establishment parties right now, which are all run by the, you know, above them for the same purposes, there's no difference. You didn't see Andrea Horwath of the NDP. You didn't see uh, Del Duca of the Liberal government criticizing anything Ford said or did when it came to the jabs, they were all on the same page. There was no adversarial relationship, which there should be. That's the whole point of an official opposition, to, to give the opposing view of a government policy just to give food for thought. It may not be a strong position, but at least it gives the public something to think about. There was none of that. It just shows you how dangerous politics has become, how infiltrated it has become from 
above the level of the politicians. And what do we do as the, as the public? Do we accept this? Or do we say, hey, we're going to organize. We're going to have candidates that actually care about us. We're going to have candidates that are not multi-million dollar uh, uh, silver spoon born babies trying to pretend they're like the average Joe and mimicking our sufferings at our, you know, our, 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 our surf level issues. They don't care about our surf level issues. They don't have the same issues. Their issues are making even greater amounts of money that they already had while they pretend to be like us in the middle class. So until we get people that represent us running in politics, our level, uh, the average middle class person, nothing's going to change. Both for is a multi-million dollar silver spoon baby. Same with Justin Trudeau. These two have to go. We have to replace them with legitimate, uh, legitimate parties and legitimate candidates. I mean, I know I've talked a lot about politics on the show tonight, but that is the only peaceful way we're going to resolve the issues that we have today. Politics is our institution to do that. And they're trying to obfuscate our abilities to exercise those rights in a political forum. And that's why more people really need to get involved and take part in politics. And like I said, there's a lot of naysayers out there. I wonder how many of them are legitimate and how many of them are paid. Oh, that's not going to change anything. That's not going to change anything. It's the only way to change anything. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, it concerns me when I hear people say, You're, we're never going to vote our way out of tyranny. Uh, you know, I hear that a lot. I understand what people mean by that kind of. But when I hear people promoting that, I don't think under people understand what it is they're really being told, which is, I guess we're going to have to do away with democracy then, in which case you're not going to have a vote at, at all. Uh, or am I missing something or taking that the wrong way, Chris? No, I think I think that that's really what is being said. And, you know, we people knock our institutions a lot and there, there's people that, that definitely want to tear them down. But I don't think they realize what, you know, perhaps or maybe some do actually some definitely do. But if these systems get torn down, it is going to be chaos and suffering at an unimaginable scale. Like pe people do not really talk about it. But if suddenly our systems start collapsing, we are all in for a world, a world of hurt. You can't destroy any system without having something. There's way too many people. You need to have something to replace it and a, and a way to do things. And I, I, for one, I know there's problems in all of our systems, but a lot of people spent a lot of time, very smart and, and, and good people, building these systems up so that we could have a society. And I don't think we're anywhere near at a point where we should be tearing them down. We need to fix them. There's work to be done, but we need these systems. Yeah, it seems to me the government is the one that's trying to tear the tear everything apart and tear it all down. Uh, we need to work against that and and fix the problems, and that has to be done in a in a political way, in my view. So I think that you've really touched on that, Rob. Thanks. And just I just uh, did research the registered political parties in Ontario, and the Ontario Party is not a party in Ontario. It's not yeah, a legitimate the, party. I yeah, just, I know that they let their paperwork. They didn't submit the right paperwork, and. Uh, and they, they were deregistered as, as an actual party. And yet I still receive emails from Derek Sloan. And um, not that I was a member of the party, but I'm on his mailing list. And he's always he always has some person who's at the forefront of some issue where they're raising money. And I'm it, it's perplexing to me. Why is Derek Sloan with the defunct Ontario party fronting a fundraising campaign for this person? And then it's another person. And then it's another person. It, it seems very odd. I've never seen anything quite like that before. Do you know what's going on there? 
Oh, absolutely. What it is, it's a matter of how many times are you going to go to the well to donate money to a political party? If he exhausts all of your uh, ability to donate with these silly things that are going nowhere, are you going to be donating to a legitimate party at the time of the election? No, because you've exceeded your donations and in, in your in your walks to the well, so to speak. And that's what this is. And this it just shows you how dirty some of the, some of what the players are in our institutions and why we need a, a you know a peaceful revolution, but a political revolution with. What happened in when you had the Farmers Party in the 1930s in Ontario? People got so fed up with the three mainstream parties that the farmers said, look, we're going to make things different for you. And that's what they did. The first time up, the Farmers Party won and changed everything. All the other parties were cleaned out and they had to start from scratch. And that's what we need in Ontario. We need a, an alternative. And, I, and I'll tell you, from a provincial point of view, the new blue party is the only one that is actually echoing what the public wants every other party is imposing the things that we don't want so mm -hmm. i think the choice is clear the next provincial election well chris do you think we're the, the progress is being made or are you winning or losing yeah i think yeah I, I do think there's progress being made and and on a lot of fronts i do however think that we're in for a bit of a ride here before we really get to a point where things start improving like this is a it's a long fight there's a lot to be done and I mean, I, I am seeing improvement in some places. Um, I'm also seeing things, you know, people cracking down in other places. And, and I guess that's all part of it. I think we're going to have to go through another couple of years here of, uh, of rather tough times and, and certain ways it could get tougher. But I think we are, we are on our way to winning. Mm -hmm. It'll take time, but eventually it'll happen. It'll happen. Yeah. People are having Yeah, yeah I, I don't think anything will happen. Short, but I got to run pretty soon, so... Yeah. Yeah. And with that being said, um, let's get some final thoughts from you guys and, and kind of wrap this conversation up. Do you think that the arrest of David Menzies, the uh, the the media, af like what's coming in the aftermath of that through media attention, even mainstream media attention on this particular issue, worldwide attention focused on it? Is there is, is this going to result in any kind of improvement or is there something positive that has come out of this? I mean, the exposure is is good on its own. Like that, that is definitely doing something. Um, I don't think I, I highly doubt there'll be much accountability, or at least not for for a very long time. But it may it may affect a change in tactic and behavior from some of these people. That's where I found we get the wins. Like it's not often that that a police officer ends up getting disciplined or or things like that. But when we show enough and enough people see it. I found that that police and and well, not just police politicians they they adjust their tact, and if we if we show the right things and they're egregious enough, then uh, then it forces them into into changing their approach a little bit, even if there isn't actual accountability or punishment for the people. So, I mean the uh, the awareness itself that this is going on is uh, is a positive for me. Mm -hmm. And final thoughts from you, Rob. Well, I think and I think it's another it's another stain, but this is a stain that's going to stick. Uh, there's a number of stains that have stuck to the Trudeau government, and I think this is another one of those stains that's going to stick. It's it's also an indicator of why Trudeau is, is trying so hard to clamp down on either independent media or the ability to share news on Facebook and all these other platforms, because he doesn't want this stuff to being talked about, but it's actually backfiring. And it, I personally, I don't consume any Canadian news other than Rebel. Um, but I, uh, sorry, I shouldn't say that I do concern. I do consume some of the independent media, but none of the mainstream media is what I'm saying. I don't consume any of the Canadian mainstream media because I know it's all propaganda. 
I do look at news from India. News from India, it's in English, easy to understand. The way they talk about Trudeau is unbelievable. If you look at the news coming out of the EU, I, I speak Polish, so I can re, I can uh, understand what's happening there. They're talking about Trudeau, and it's crucifying the way the way the average politician that's not a socialist, not, not a Donald Tusk. Now that we have that guy in Poland, but um, the average the, the the true politician who actually cares about the population they're supposed to serve, they can't stand Trudeau. They look at him as a world example of an abject failure in politics. And I think a lot of people are baffled how this guy is still in office. Well, I, I, I'll tell you, if, if, he, if he manages to get reelected, or at least manages to form government again, I'm really going to take issue and really be suspicious of our political institutions and whether or not our votes are counting, because I don't know anybody in any facet, in any, uh, you know, of any political stripe that used to even be liberal, that's going to vote liberal. I recognize that perhaps some government uh, uh, union members may vote, be voting liberal because that's how their union is telling them to vote, but 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 they're far outnumbered by the average Canadian. So I really, I'm really going to take issue if uh, Mr. Trudeau makes it back into office and forms government. And um, just one one final thing from me, and it actually comes from Brendan Kennedy, who you had met on this program before, Rob. Uh, he messaged me. And he still comes on from time to time and, and joins us on the on the program. And he tells me that it's your birthday. It is. <laughs> well, he said to say happy birthday. So happy birthday from Brendan. Happy birthday from me as well. And I'm sure from Chris, too. <laughs> Thank yeah, you yeah. very much. Very kind. I think Chris actually wished me happy birthday today on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now that you mentioned it, I forgot. Were, weren't you taking a run this morning on your birthday? That's like right, uh, you're training. Uh, yeah, I'm training for a marathon again. So uh, another marathon. So I ran for about an hour uh, early this morning, and uh, you know I just caught a quick segment and posted that. And I'm going to keep running. Yeah. 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 Right on. Well, well happy birthday. <laughs> happy birthday, Rob. And uh, on that positive note, we will draw things to a close. And and Gail didn't come back. Uh, she's been. Uh, I guess, uh, sidetracked somehow, but that's okay. Thank you to Gail Robertson, uh, journalist, uh, for joining us as well. Oh, and just one other thing. Um, how can people follow you guys? Because I know, Rob, you're looking for support for your your bid to, to join uh, people at the Ontario legislature. And and Chris, uh, you have important work that people need to, to focus on as well. So where can they find you guys? Uh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, so um, Chris Dacey on Facebook, um, Dacey Media, pretty much everywhere else at at Chris Dacey on X, and uh, I just just got a website launched too, so uh, DaceyMedia.ca. I'm still working on it, but uh, that'll have links to everything I'm doing, and there'll be a lot more there coming soon. And okay. for me, I have two. Uh, I have a Twitter handle at Rob Stocky, and I also have RobStocky.com as my website. Um, you can you can get me uh, via email on that website. The website itself hasn't been updated in a while because there hasn't been an election. But uh, we will be uh, pushing more of that website uh, information onto that website in the future. So that's how you can get a hold of me. Okay, gentlemen, thank you so much for spending all this time with us tonight. Long-form journalism and, uh, and very helpful to the public tonight. Really, really appreciate your input. Thanks so much, Rick. All right. Thanks, Rick. And folks, I'll be back tomorrow night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Catch you guys on the flip side. This has been a Maverick Multimedia Productions.